Welcome, welcome, welcome to Robos 26. We have a huge show coming up, a lot to get through. Obviously, Western Conference Finals. Pro, what's going on? When you say huge show, does that mean a lot of information or we're going to record 90% of it and then have to fucking record it over because the hamster died in the fucking computer that you had and we have to fucking do this shit over again? Hey, man, I'm just an athlete, man. I don't, I don't know how to do this shit. You know, we're 26 <laughs> episodes in. I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But a lot going on. Look, we have we have two conference finals. As we record this Sunday in Australia, Saturday night in America, the Suns Clippers is about to start. So what we're going to do, we're going to leave that till the end of the pod, go over that series at the end of the pod because you know it might be a blowout, it might be a big halftime score. So we'll, we'll let that lie. But we will get started with the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks. This is currently at 1-1. I feel like Atlanta stole game one. I think Milwaukee had control for most of that game. Atlanta were kind of in, in striking distance, and they credit to them. They stole it. The Bucks pummeled them in game two, absolutely destroyed them. Um, Atlanta looked looked horrible, and, and Milwaukee looked fantastic, so it was a, a bad mix. It was ended up being a 30, 40-point deficit. A few things to note. Drew Holiday and Brooke Lopez, to me, have been real big in this in this, play, in this series. Um, I think Brooke Lopez started to really catch win towards the end of that that Brooklyn series and he's been really big for them and Drew Holiday has refound his mojo he's shooting the ball better this series in the first two games it looks like he's in a better flow another small note Nate McMillan some mind games with Giannis Pro he's uh, it's a decent strategy he's basically come out on record and said that the 10 second thing is not being called on Giannis's free throws Giannis does tend to toe the line I think it's probably shot at 10.5 11 seconds sometimes and Nate McMillan has put that in the media maybe to, to mess with our guy Giannis at the line a little bit but have you seen this series so far i think we both picked milwaukee to get through but um do you see atlanta getting through at all i, I don't I, I think it's one of those things like it, it sort of reminded me a little bit way back with um when iverson and, the, and, and philly i believe they took game one with the lakers and then they just got pummeled the rest of the series it just sort of reminds me of that where like i think they you know they came out swinging game one milwaukee just didn't really flinch you know, sort of made the adjustments they had to make. And yeah, I think they just sort of figured out Atlanta, in my opinion. But I, I don't see I don't see it being a blowout the rest of the way. I think it could go six, as high as six, but I don't I don't see Atlanta getting out of this. Yeah, and Giannis, Giannis is, I think, going to be, you know, I, I just don't think they have anyone to guard Giannis. They've tried Capella at times. John Collins, I think, is a little undersized. Um, you know, Giannis was just... You know, he was just bullying people down there on the block. Um, he didn't have a huge game numbers-wise that we're used to seeing from Giannis, but I felt like he controlled the game. He he played at a decent tempo. And at the other end, Trey Young, you know, he struggled. He struggled to shoot the ball for the most part. A stat we'll get to a little bit later. Only drew one foul, which we'll get to a little bit later in, in that whole game, which is which is a pretty pretty glaring number when you've got the ball in your hands that much. But I mean, there's there's not much more. I think Atlanta have heavily overachieved this season. I think it's been a great year for them. So by no means is this a letdown if they don't get through this series. But I'm the same. I think six is a good result for the Hawks. Maybe they still want another one at home. Um, but I mean, the way the way the season's going and everything going on in the world, it could be <laughs> it could be three one Hawks going back to Milwaukee. It's unbelievable that no question about it. And I think I think Giannis being closer to the basket in the post is is better for them. You don't want him to get comfortable taking threes and you know and mid-range jumpers fading away from the basket he's 
you know, his, his post game is improving a little bit. You want him close to the rim. He'll get to the free throw line, but I think he's just bullying guys is so much easier play. You know, and I think it's a more of a short play for their success. I, I, you know, once he starts doing those step back fadeaways and all that stuff, like, you know, I know, I understand he wants to do it and all, but I just don't think it's a good shot for him. And even, you know how it is every other night, he could be okay from the free throw line. So I would rather him get to the free throw line, have a better chance of scoring, you know, from the field and then get to the line and maybe have one of those nights where he goes seven for 12 or eight for 12, you know, and just sort of be more efficient. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I I don't see Atlanta getting out of this. And just the, I mean, if you put Capella on him, maybe you put Capella on him for stretches when they go into that post up and then put um, Collins on Lopez. But it just doesn't seem like Atlanta has a good matchup. We saw post ups towards the end of that series in Brooklyn, but I feel like Brooklyn's length at times bothered, or at least got to Giannis for the most part. Um, this series, I just don't see anyone being able to guard. And the transition points, I think, have been huge. They, they, they don't come a lot in this series, but Giannis, when he has been able to get in the open floor off a few turnovers, I think that gets Milwaukee going. So for Atlanta to have any chance, they cannot turn the ball over. They cannot take bad shots that spray out long and then trigger a transition from Milwaukee. But it will be a, a very interesting finish to the series and um, be interested to see you know, Milwaukee getting to the finals, I think, will be, will be huge for that series. Yeah, it'll be great. It'll be great to see Giannis there. It'll be great to see that team. It will be great to see a small market team get in there. I think I just think it's good for everybody. It's new blood. It just sort of, you know, the experience of having them in there. And yeah, I think that'll be great for that city. It'll be great for that organization. And it, it keeps everything on, on, on line of what they're trying to do. So I think it'll be great. It'll be great for Bud as well. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, who the fuck wants to see another, like, you know, fire bud campaign? I mean, just let the fucking guy sleep for a couple of weeks, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think they've had a- We'll stop that shit. They've overachieved. I mean, uh, not overachieved, sorry. They've, they've, they've hit their markers, I think, um, you know, and, and get into the finals after last season with the implosion against Miami. We didn't pick them to go this far. A lot of people didn't, and, and they're doing a fantastic job. So, I hope they get to the finals and- and potentially, you know, win a championship. It'd be interesting to see if they don't win a championship. I, I think you got to keep Bud. But then there were some rumblings that were looking at at any out to get rid of him. So it'd be interesting to see that chess game of if if they win a championship or make the championship game. What the pivot is for Milwaukee? I'd assume it'd be a shorter term deal um, at a bigger number just to provide some security. But it will be interesting. Yeah, you know, to me, again, I thought I think by getting to the finals, that's that's good enough for now. Like. You know, obviously, the underachieving in the last few years, that, that's been a, a big deal. But getting to the finals, you know, I think if, if they sort of lost this series 4-1 or something like that, then maybe you could start those rumblings. But when you get to the finals with this team, that's what they're supposed to do. And if they're going to lose, they're going to lose to, a, you know, a pretty good team in the finals if they do lose in the final. And I, I think that's great. I think that's what they, you know, that's a good sort of benchmark you know, to go forward with that you made the finals, you know, you got there and, you know, now obviously the bar raises in the next couple of years, but I think, I think that would be great. I would, I wouldn't look to do it, but you know how the fucking NBA is every other, you know, one day you're fucking, they're, they're serenading you. The next day they're, they're coming in with fucking, you know, tape measures to measure your office and, you know, for, <laughs> for new office chair for the new coach. It's so, so bullshit, but 
I think that you, if you have a good coach that knows what he's doing, the players like him and you're sort of, you're, you're not underachieving. You're just sort of getting to at least the level you should get to. I, I think the coach should be fine, but who the fuck knows? Yeah, and it's what usually comes down to, like you always say, it can come down to talent. Like at this at this point in the season, the, the the top four, the conference finals, I mean, coaching will make a difference, but a bigger difference will be number one, health, and number two, the talent you have on the floor. So, you know, we have a good question about that later from somebody in the Q&As, but I think coaches get – you know, they get the first the first beat over the head whenever things go wrong. When at times, you know, it's it's a it's a kind of a team effort, and a lot of times players, you know, will get traded. But first off, they'll they'll try to fire the coach or try to fire the GM, and then they might finally realize like, yeah, we don't have as much talent, or our star guy's not as good. So you always hate to see it, but. We'll get to that, like, as I said, we'll get to that Suns Clippers series towards the end of the pod. That's about to start right now as we record. Ben Simmons pro, um, it's been a rough week for him. A lot of fallout. It seemed like the world versus Ben. You know, funnily enough, we recorded a day before that Game 7 series and and we discussed this exact thing at length. You know, we finally got one right where it, it looked as though in that series, as a series wore on and Nate McMillan was hacking on purpose that that whenever they were in the bonus late in quarters, whenever they, you know, Ben thought they'd put him on the line on purpose, his aggressiveness just went to zero. He was deferring, you know, there were times he was dribbling over half court, throwing it to Embiid or someone and then just running to the dunker. And we kind of noted that. And then, you know, it, it, it happened in that game that the notorious um, wide open dunk attempt that he just refused to shoot, I think, solidified that he was he was a little bit mentally fried with a free throw thing. Um, it's a bad place to be. I've discussed it. I've been there um, at times and, you know, it can be, it can be a lonely place place but for a guy like Ben where his whole game is predicated on on the Giannis style rim paint attacks it's a glaring deficiency and and now it has triggered you know a pile on Ben which I don't agree with but look that's the you know the the society we're in we've discussed many times social media your Stephen A. Smith's your all your talking heads on TV millions of memes of of, of Ben and, and he's shooting woes um and now you know he, he's in a tough spot I think um you know he's in a he's in a very interesting part of his career um and pro i don't think it's as simple as getting in the gym and just shooting a thousand free throws a day to be honest um i'm sure you'd agree i think um, some sports psychology or a sports psychologist needs to get involved in that a little bit um it's just a matter of resetting and the equivalent of a, a golfer having the yips on the um on the putting green and doing everything else right but that one little thing then becomes you know a balloon in your head that's just getting bigger and bigger and i guess you know what would be the first thing you do on day one with with ben simmons this offseason the thing i would do is say look whatever plan we're gonna have we're gonna you know how much i don't know how much actual technique he needs to change like i don't i don't really know because you know you sent me that clip of him playing in summer league in his rookie year and he he looked great and the form didn't look much different but like he was just sort of free flowing to shoot that shot and he was making them um Whatever plan you're going to have. So, say you're going to go with the shooting coach. Here, here's my crystal ball. And look, if I'm if I'm picking a fucking series, go the other way. If I'm fucking telling you love or marriage advice, do the opposite. If I tell you something about player development, it's just something that I really know. If I tell you it's fucking, you know, if I tell you it's, tell you it's Easter, don't go, don't go fucking checking the calendar. Just go home and start dying eggs. This is my business. I think I'm pretty good at it. What I would tell this guy to do is say, look, okay, I know what's going to happen. They're going to put him with a, a shooting coach. There's a guy named Lethal Shooter. He was a big social media guy, shooting coach that works with a lot of the Lakers. 
I think he's got an affiliation with Clutch, so they're going to probably put him with him. You're going to see a lot of fucking Instagram posts of him shooting with no shirt on, making 27 threes in a row because, A, that guy's pretty good. B, I think, you know, Ben has done that in the past where he's changed his shot or what have you in the summer, posted it of him being Larry fucking Bird. And everybody's like clapping at it, going great. They're, they're putting banners in the fucking, you know, in Philadelphia and he refuses to shoot. So what I think that needs to happen is, okay, you have a plan. Either a coach is going to do it, a trainer is going to do it. And if I'm Philly, I'm saying we're doing it. This is bullshit. We're fucking doing it. We got our staff. You're going to work with them and we got a plan. But the plan is, I don't care what he does in the summer. He's going to have a routine. But the plan, this is where Philly's got to step in if he's still a sixer coming into the season is, look, whatever is done this summer is fine. But in the season, you got to shoot him. We're not asking you to shoot threes. Threes are, threes are irrelevant for you. Don't worry about the three. But you need to be aggressive to try to get to the free throw line. And you need to, we're going to draw up at least five or six things during a game where we need you to shoot these. It's not the form and technique. It is having the ability, because like once you make this change or whatever you're going to do, it's not shooting right fucking handed or anything like that. It's no witchcraft. It's let's get a plan, get this technique going. But during the season, here's what development is. You you get into a season, you shoot eight or nine shots from mid-range or whatever that number is. And then you go six for nine, you think you're cured. And everybody's fucking cheering. Then the next night, you go one for nine. And you don't want to shoot them anymore because you can't deal with that adversity. So the issue, Bogues, here is, look, we're going to support you. But you need to shoot these open shots when they present themselves. And you got to deal with the ups and downs of an NBA season and your development when you're working on a new skill where some nights you're going to go six for nine. Some nights you're going to go 0 for nine. And then having the balls to fucking shoot 0 for 9 on a Tuesday, and then on a Thursday, you shoot 9 more in a game. We need you to be aggressive, and it's going to take some time, no doubt, but it isn't about the technique. It's about actually shooting them when they present themselves, when they're open in games, and continue to shoot those consistent shots when they're open and deal with the ups and downs. And we're going to support you. We're going to continue to aggressively say to shoot these shots. And that's where it's going to come, folks. It might take all year, but this kid has to be able to engage. He needs to be able to say, fuck it, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to continue to shoot and keep my routine the same and continue to shoot these open shots and deal with the ups and downs because eventually you're going to get it. It's going to click. But if uh, if you're afraid of missing, which he clearly is, and you don't want to shoot these shots because you're afraid to go three in a row and that fucking guy that's draw, you know, that guy in Philly that draws the fucking on the chalkboard with the fucking shoppy, you know, ain't gonna fucking talk shit about you and they're gonna boo you. They're gonna boo you. They're assholes. It's fine. It's that's that's what the NBA is. They're filled with fans that are they get on your ass and they're talking heads and shit. You gotta have the balls to fucking continue to shoot these shots in games. And as an organization, you need to continue. It doesn't matter if he goes two weeks in a row without making one. you got to continue to support him to shoot these shots and deal with them in, in, in this time. And that's what it is. He was 61% during the regular season. So 
it's yeah. not like this is just you know he shot in the th- what was he in the thirty percent um, percentile in in the playoffs and, and as we know the playoffs slow down analytics become or kind of scouting is a bit more kind of pointed so they thought we can pick on Ben at times and it, and it worked for for Atlanta they picked on him and it, and it screwed him mentally but it goes back to my point of it's not completely broken he's sixty one percent no I think he was more confident looked more confident at the line during the regular season but for some reason in that in that playoff series it just Something clicked. So I think mentally, just go back to that 61% mindset during the regular season, improve on that. And I think the biggest thing with free throws is focusing on your next two and not your last 100. And that that's easier said than done. I've had that before. I've been hacked before and you're 0 for 4 and you're like, holy shit, I just got fouled again. I'm 0 for 4. If I, if I miss these next two, I see someone running up to the scorer's table. And, and that was a part of it too. Doc was on record, as we said last episode, of I'm not benching Ben if they hack him. Well, in that playoff series, he started to do that. And I think Ben started to notice and started to probably overthink like, holy shit, if I don't make these two, Doc's sending someone in for me. So I think it put a lot of pressure on him. But that summer league clip that Pro refers to, there was a summer league clip from before his rookie year that he was shooting jumpers, elbow jumpers, 18-footers, and it was just wasn't perfect, but it was just confident and it was not thinking about it. And it was, oh, my God, went under the screen, bang, jumper. And it looked crisp. It looked like it's kind of like Giannis that we talk about all the time. Like he, he's not the best free throw shooter. He's not the jump shooter. But you can't really tell what happened in the last possession with him. You know, if he got hacked and went, you know, he, he shot air balls at, at the line and then the next possession he's coming to dunk on you again. I think if Ben gets to that mindset and if he goes five for 15 one game, I still think – you know, he's, the positives that he presents for his team outweigh 10 missed free throws. Now, in a late game, every now and then, if you're Doc Rivers, you might have to say, hey, we might pull you out if they're, if they're hacking at the three-minute mark trying to get back in the game. We might pull you out for a minute. That, that's the, the conundrum that Doc has is I'm not, I'm not pulling you out to limit your confidence, but we might have to do it every now and then. But during the flow of the game, I want you to get to the line as much as you can. And I think it's it's just I mean the Philly support thing I don't know where that's going to go. Jalen Bead's comments were pretty pretty pointed towards the end of that that game and series, and we all know how superstars work when they, they their team loses a series. It's it's the blame game, and Joel was a culprit of that, and and maybe some would argue Joel has that right. He, he had an MVP caliber year, but he did turn the ball over eight times. He, he didn't have the perfect game by all means, but I think. Pro that the Ben Embiid experiment is over. Um, I, I think they're two contradicting styles of play. Ben, Mike D'Antoni style, open floor, shooting the first seven seconds, I think is his strength. Joel Embiid, I think can run the floor for a big guy, but I think he's better in the half court, ISO, post up, giving my touches. I'm gonna I'm gonna just Hakeem Elijah on you to death on that block. So I just don't think that these two guys will last long term. Would you agree? Yeah, I I agree. I think that Daryl sort of sat there the first year, let things happen. And then, you know, look, I think the more you wait and the more you sit back, especially if you're a GM that's looking to make moves, and then things like this happen, it just sort of it, it sort of proves your case. So if you wanted to trade him right when he got the job and he, you know, and he didn't, now he could just sit back, have something like this happen, and then basically be like, I told you so. If that was the case. I, I think that with the shooting thing you know, it's just typical. Everybody jumps off the bandwagon quickly. And I think everybody, you know, way overreacts with this. And this is where we're at. Like his teammates, his coach, everybody's sort of wavering their sort of support for him. And that's just natural. For him, he needs to look himself in the mirror and really figure out what's going on and what's 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 wrong with me. 
Meaning like, it's not the coach's fault. It's not the organization's fault. This is on me. This is, you know, this is on me. What do I have to fix? And if the, if the Philly's going to keep him, they need to continue to get the ball in his hands during clutch time, during the, during the regular season and put him in these situations. Even if he fucks up some wins for him, you know, throughout the year, because the more times he faces this pressure and you support him, I think it's going to help him for the playoffs. Now, again, the playoffs is a different animal, but you get, you can't just like, he can't turn this on and shut this off, but he's got to look himself in the mirror and figure out, like, I can't have my inner circle just hide all this adversity from me and blame everybody else except me. He's got to take responsibility. Like, Doc's got to take responsibility. I mean, Doc, Doc has to take responsibility for blowing that game and blowing that lead a little bit. Now, yes, it was Ben mostly because of the lack of aggress- aggressiveness and being scared, but he's got to take a little bit of responsibility for this, no doubt. But this kid's got to take responsibility because if he gets traded to, say, Minnesota, San Antonio, Portland, I mean, this isn't going away. And that's the thing. You got to face this head on. This isn't, this isn't something that just you're, you're changing your team and your, and your zip code and, and everything's going to stop. These are going to be problems that you're going to have to deal with. So you're going to have to really figure out a plan of attack going forward of how you're going to deal with this. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's gonna. It's just gonna come down to. I hope it's the um, ladder of not posting on Instagram. I, I think he's. I think I don't think he will. I've got a hunch that he won't this off season. I, I really do because, like you said, the last two three off seasons we've heard the same thing, the same story. Working on my threes and and the, the, the teaser clips on Instagram. I think that put more pressure on him. To be honest, I think it really did. I think if he the last two off seasons just shut it down um, and just put his work in. And came back. I don't think people would have bought into it as much. Um, but the fact that there was those videos posted and whatnot, I think people were like, "Oh, he's finally fixed it," and then he comes back, doesn't want to shoot. It created more anxiety and pressure for him. So I hope he just, you know, kind of goes MIA this off season. Um, well, besides the national team, which we'll get to in a second. But if he was gonna, you know, work on his game, do it, do it behind closed doors, which you know is hard to do at times in today's world of social media. But where does that leave us as the Australian Boomers? We, are, you know, have a big affiliation with the Australian national team for obvious reasons, and that's the elephant in the room here in, in Australia. Is his people put out a statement through the media saying that he's unlike? I assume it was his people. It was through your typical um, cronies in the in the media that um, they get tipped off by agents. They basically within a, within twenty four hours of of that series ending and said, you know, Ben Simmons is unlikely to represent his country in tokyo um there still hasn't been official word from ben or his camp now this is a a tough one for for the national team you know he's a he's a guy we, we obviously want part of our national team i honestly think that would be an environment that would help him i think there's some tough nuts in that team there's some good team first guys there's some guys that would support his his elements right now and the issues that he's going through and actually help him through it rather than be a joel Embiid and just pour more fuel on on the fan fire for him but He's, he's. I think he's out, um, and I don't have an issue with him. I've been on record this week in Australian media. A few people asked me about it. I, I don't have an issue with him missing the national team. I have no issue whatsoever. I'm not going to judge a guy upon his off season. The reason being, there's there's numerous reasons guys miss playing for their national team. It could be wife's pregnant, family issues, my body's messed up, I had surgery. I'm Ben Simmons. I have a few issues from the season I need to fix with my shot. I'm mentally not there. I'm drained, whatever, right? I'm not judging anyone upon missing it. What I'm judging Ben on is the teasing of playing for the national team. That's what I have an issue with. And I think that's 
That's my biggest gripe with all this is if you don't want to play, just say you don't want to play. And maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, but the, the ramifications of him teasing aren't just about him. It's it's number one, it's the roster makeup. Okay, Ben Simmons plays, we maybe have to have two extra shooters instead of two extra defenders. Ben Simmons plays, we got we got the head coach is now implementing a whole different style of basketball than if he doesn't play. Guys in camp, what's going to be my role if Ben plays if he doesn't? It, it's so much is determined by that kid playing for the national team. The one foot in, one foot out approach, it actually hurts the national team's preparations significantly in my opinion, especially if you're waiting till the last week or two before camp to let the national team know. If you know you're out, just call it. No, you know, people are going to have their opinions and that's that's, you know, like you said, Philly fans are going to boo, NBA fans are going to boo, Australian media and fans are going to be pissed off you don't play, but that'll die down quickly. For me, the thing that's that's bad is the one foot one foot in, one foot out approach pro. And I think he just, you know, he, he needs to make a decision, let the national team know and, and get on with life. But I, like I said from the start, I think he's going to be out. I think he's probably got the most important turning point in his career. And I just don't think that's going to be with the Australian national team. Yeah, I think that when you're growing up with this and you've got to be a professional, we talk, you hear about it from every NBA player and says it's a business, it's a business, it's a business. Well, if it's a business, you've got to show professionalism. If you don't want to play, that's 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 fine. You gotta just you know, but you gotta understand there are other people involved, and you gotta you gotta step up and be a pro. And this is what being a pro is. Look, you know, I, I'm dealing with issues. I gotta I gotta iron them out. I feel as though if I'm gonna change my shot, being in an Olympic situation may not be the best thing for me. And then just end it. But the you know sometimes these players again they like to talk out of both sides of their mouth. When it's about them, it's always a business and they're, if they think they're getting screwed. But now you're in a position where other people are relying on you to make the decision to, again, prepare for this Olympic event. And you're just sort of like one foot in, one foot out. It's not professional. Just just rip the Band-Aid off right now and just deal with it. But yeah, it's just – it's look, it seems like there's always an issue with him and this national team. Either he's not playing and – you know, it, it seems like it, it, the perception is it's a lack of respect and not really taking the national team serious. Like I said, like you said, even if he's not going to play, just tell him. But yeah, I think it's unprofessional. I think he's got to step up with this and he's got to deal with this. And again, you've got to deal with adversity. This is adversity. This is this is some real life stuff where other people rely on you. Just tell him. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the way he's handling it. Yeah, I don't think a lot of it is on him neither. I, I think... There is uh, his circle is, I think, very influential on on the decisions he makes. He's in that tra- that transition period of his career, in my opinion. Every NBA player generally comes in the league at 18, 19, 20, 21. They're in a circle, and the views and opinions of the inner circle is this is the be all and end all. Most players get to a point in early twenties, mid twenties, sometimes late twenties, where they start to realize, hang on a second, like I'm the man in this in this this circle. <laughs> this circle doesn't exist without me. I need to start making decisions for myself. Most players figure that out along their career. I think Ben's at that point. I think he needs to start making some decisions for himself now. He's got a pretty tight-knit circle of, of family and the agency in Clutch Sports. And from what I understand, they make a lot of his decisions. I think he's he's getting to that period in his career where he might need to start thinking, I need to start making some decisions for myself and, and what I think. And you know, the other thing with the Australian national team, someone might ask, why, why, why not make that decision? Why not, why not come out and just say, you're not playing 
Well, marketing is big with Ben. Clutch Sports, the agency, they're, they're a big marketing agency, which is fair enough. I've got no gripes with that. So I think that play, well, not I think, I know that plays a big part in him not coming out earlier and saying, I'm not playing for the national team because there's that carrot of marketing. He's got a big deal here with Ford and 20 Pies. The year before, it was um, Victoria Tourism. And I know for a fact that that plays a part. So for those asking why not just make that decision, that, that would be it. I have a story around the national team and what happened in 2019 and the World Cup. I'm going to save this till post-Olympics. I don't want to be that guy that's then accused of um, the reason why Ben doesn't play. But this story um, is – it kind of solidifies what we're talking about right now as far as the national team and and what it is. And it's a long-winded story. I'll get to it maybe in two or three podcasts or or, or potentially once um, once we know if Ben's playing or not because I don't want want to get blamed for that, bro. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, Social media blames you for enough these days. You might as well lay off for a couple of weeks. I think I think that's best for everybody going forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not wrong there. But yeah, we'll get to that. I mean, like I wish Ben all the best. This isn't you know people are just shitting on him left, right, and center. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not griping his decision not to play for the national team. I'm not griping that he needs time to spend on his shot. There are some deficiencies that he needs to fix. Like any player has deficiencies, he has some that are that are glaring right now. But I want him to get better. I want him to to come back and be the best player Australia has ever seen playing in the NBA, and then hopefully come back and lead our national team in the future. Um, this isn't this isn't so much a a hate fest on Ben. I think we're discussing something that he you know is the honest truth and he needs to work on. And I just hope those people around him and his family are supporting him. Um, but also, like you said, telling telling him the hard truth about hey man, like. You, you gotta get on with it. We need to fix this, and you need to be the Ben Simmons that. Remember, you were drafted. You were drafted number one for a reason. You were the the best high school player in the nation for a reason. You were the best Australian junior for a reason. Get back to that men- that mental state and that mentality. And a few missed free throws shouldn't change that. Yeah, and, and folks, as well, the organization did drop the ball in this a little bit, and so did the kid. In years past, they allowed him just to go. They're at a point now. Where I wouldn't really, I wouldn't be excited about him saying, well, we're just going to handle it and I'm going to work with a trainer This and they're going to handle it. I'll be like, at this point, Philly's got a lot of the power. I would be like, fuck no. First of all, we pay our coaches a shit ton, you know, our coaching staff. Somebody's going to handle it from us. We've tried to have this where they were going to work with a shooting coach. You know, they had a shooting coach in the past. They never used them and they would work with trainers on, on a shot and this and that. And it never got done. It's got nothing to do with trainers. But if you're an organization and you've got a hundred plus million into, into this kid, invested, you drafted him one, all that stuff. And you're just allowing him, especially at this point in juncture, if you're going to allow him just to work with outside people and you're, it's going to be, you're just dropping the ball again. I think they really need to tighten the reins on this. Nobody runs, no one's going to run this show except them as far as what this program's going to be. And they've got to be aggressive with it. And to me, if you're going to keep him and he refuses to shoot, I would, I would start sitting him. If he refuses to shoot, say, look, we're going to give you all the freedom to do this. He's a really good player. And like you said, we're not jumping off of him. I still think he's a top 20 talent. The shooting is a problem, obviously. But the other intangibles that he brings, he's got a lot of ability. He's got a lot of skill that helps a team. But this is a problem that he's got to face head on. And the organization can't be, oh, yeah, yeah, just do whatever. We'll see you in October. We'll we'll talk to you a few times throughout the year. Come see you. Wherever he's going to be in the world, they got to be with him. 
like they said in Pulp Fiction. If this motherfucker's in Indochina, I want somebody coming, you know, fucking busting out of a, a fucking bowl of rice and fucking following him. Everywhere where this fucking kid is throughout on the planet this summer, there's got to be somebody from Philly with him. And, and, and seeing this process through and not just saying, oh, yeah, it will just fix itself. Because like you said, it's more – it's a basketball issue, but it's a mental deal too. He's got to continue to play in these games and continue to get to the free throw line and continue to take open shots, not just summer runs. That's where the Olympics would be good for him, you know, to, to play an actual competition where game real games are on the line and get to the free throw line and figure this out. But they've got to come up with a plan. Both sides got to be in on it, and the Sixers just can't fall asleep at the switch like they've done in the last few years with this. And there's the mentality around that could be if, if an organization goes out aggressive, you know what's going to happen. You know, the player's going to want yeah, yeah. want to trade. Um, they're going to want out. I mean, he's still going to want to assume, I assume, spend his offseason in LA and doing all the runs and all that kind Great. of stuff. Um, so it is a it's a really interesting position that Philly have put themselves in. Um, the other elephant in the room is probably he's, he's making you know. Do you see? I think he's, I think he's movable, but do you see his contract that easily movable? It's 150 million over the next what four four five years. Yeah, it depends on the team, Bogues. Like I think like Portland is in a dire need for somebody who could defend, and they've got great offense with McCollum and, and with Dame Lillard and. You know, Norman Powell and, and Carmelo, but they need somebody who can guard. Now, every time you ship something out and get something back and, and what, like, he's like, oh, we need this glare. We need this issue fixed. Well, Ben Simmons could help you, but then you got offense going out the door, you know, and you've got, there's always a give and take with this stuff. It's not going to be completely easy, but there are teams. Like San Antonio, they don't really have a superstar. You know, they've got they've got some decent players, but they don't have that superstar. So, and they've got a lot of people making decent money, so they could probably ship some players out. But you're not going to get a player as good as Ben Simmons in a deal. You're just going to get about three players that are just good players. And then you can go to Portland and do the McCollum deal. And then there's other people that might want to deal with you as well. I'm not saying that 28 teams would be calling you because the glaring shooting thing and the mentality mentally of how he approaches things, they might not be wanting to rush out and take on that contract. But there will be there will be three or four teams off the bat that would probably want to you know do some dealing with you. And um, it's not going to be entirely easy, but he's so good at those other things, passing the ball, defense size to position, athleticism. He does have a lot of good things that show up throughout the season, but the shooting and the bad publicity, I think you will shy about half the people that would have dealt with you a month ago. You probably shy them away, but there will still be teams that would want to deal with you. I like that Portland deal though. That that That's an interesting one because you see him as a, a la, you know, Draymond Green um, next to Steph and Clay. You have Ben next to Damon CJ. That's That makes total sense. That's a, you know, that, 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 that would be a really good lineup, in my opinion. You know, Ben facilitating and getting having those Draymond esque numbers. Wow, I mean, that's that's an interesting one to look. Well, at. Well, you'd have to give up McCall. You'd have to give up McCollum to do it. Though. You couldn't keep all three. So it'll be you can't keep all three because I mean, Philly needs something back in that trade that they actually want. Yeah, good point. So yeah, so McCollum would have to be in that trade. They wouldn't do it. Other like Philly's, they need you know they need shooting. Uh, you know they need shooting and they need a scoring and they need they need a difference maker and that's the one player you know that, that they can get that that, that to make that deal work. 
There are some rumors of Warriors of having quiet as well, so that'll be interesting to see how that how they pull that off. Because I don't think you can play Draymond and Ben together. Um, whether they whether they try to you know who, who goes in that deal, but I, I know for a fact that the Warriors and it's been reported as well that there's um there's some tie kicking going on. And I think look, I think most teams in the league that you know, like San Antonio would be one. They have a really good shooting coach there and a really good program that could probably turn that turn that around for uh, for Ben. But we wish him all the best. Dallas Mavericks again are in the news, pro. They've they've um, made some hirings. What do you what do you know about about Nico Harrison, I know he was a he's, a he's a Nike rep. He's all I know. Do you know what what's his official title there with the Mavs? Well, he's going to be. I think he's going to be president of basketball operations. If I'm not mistaken, I've known Nico a long time. It, it's it's ironic. Um, in Dallas, right before I saw you in Greece, um, they had something called the Global Games in Dallas, where they have national teams come in from all over the world to play in Dallas against you know, the United States and just some competition. So I, I was out at night. A bunch of the scouts went out at night, and there's Nico Harris. He was just coming from Nike eyewear. He was dealing with Nike sunglasses. Like That was the department he worked in, and he was just about to take on Kobe Bryant. Like he, he was going to be what's called a SEAL for them. So Nike has these guys they call SEALs, like Navy SEALs, right? And they – they go out and not only do they recruit college guys for the draft to get to sign with Nike, but they also, they give him, they give them like, you know, eight, nine, 10, 12 players to deal with. And then you're their Nike rep. So that's what he did. And then he climbed the ladder very quickly. You know, he's Kobe's guy and, and, and he, he was a bunch of other guys, people as well. And then he moved up to becoming, to become somebody who was well entrusted with running Nike basketball. So he was one of the most important people in that in Nike that dealt with signing basketball players. So, you know, he did everything basketball related for Nike with pro, college, high school stuff that they did. <clears throat> he had to sign off on it. He's a very good person. Um, he's very well connected. He's obviously got to learn the job. He's never done this before. He's never worked in the NBA. He's, But I think in today's climate of – how important information is on players that he could, you know, getting that information, that's a big thing. And he has a relationship with probably obviously every Nike athlete, including Luka Doncic. They've had to across paths before, but I've just known him through Nike and working um, through Kobe and then working the Nike events. I've always had a good relationship with the guy. Um, he's an intelligent guy that is good with people. I think people will like him. And I think he's going to have to learn on the job like anything else. But I think, you know, it's a good hire by by Dallas. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of work to be done, so that's good. There's not a lot of pressure. There's no draft picks this year. They, um, that was done in the Porzingis deal. Obviously, they got to figure out the Porzingis thing. But I think it's a good transition to work with, you know, with their head coach. And I wish him the best. I think he's, he's going to do okay there. I think he's going to do well. So tell me – what is the difference between president of basketball and a, and a GM? There isn't. It depends on how they see it. It's not – there's nothing really set in stone about what your deal is. Sometimes you'll have a GM, but it's all just title stuff. Again, like we talked about before, it's all who has the owner's ear. And the president of basketball operations usually is the GM, but just not without the title. If you get a bigger title, you get more money, you get more everything. And that's basically what it is. Some agent probably thought it up 15 years ago. And oh, wait a minute, you know, there's something better than a GM. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, it's so, sort of like that it's movie. It's just come out of nowhere. Like it's the last probably five or ten years. It's really been yeah. You've noticed president of basketball titles 
But okay, so a team with a president of basketball and a GM, who's got the say? Is it just owner's ear? Usually president of basketball operations. Like I said, it's like, remember the movie they said, well, seven-minute abs, let's come up with a new thing called six-minute abs? It's the same <laughs> thing. It's like, let's just one-up this thing so I could hire more people and I could hire a GM and I could hire this. Yeah. It's not a big deal, but he'll be running – um, he'll be running all basketball, you know, with Michael Finley. I believe, you know, Michael's, you know, Michael's Mark's right hand man, and he's been in the organization a while. They've, you know, they've groomed him. You know, they, they're very. He's very much in that circle of, you know, when things are going to be decided, we'll go through Michael as well. And I think it's it'll be a good deal. I think he'll have a good support staff around him of people that will sort of do it. And then Mark will, you know, Mark. You know, Mark would help him as well. He's been around for a long time. Um, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know if they're going to hire somebody with GM experience, like that was a GM at one time that's really not and sort of on the downside of their career that might, that, that they, they could groom the guy as far as like, hey, I've been in this situation before. You might want to think of this, you know, but you make, obviously he'll make the decision, but maybe giving him someone that had experience of actually being a GM and being a decision maker. I'm not sure what they're going to do. I've heard that they're not going to hire anybody else. They're just going to hire him and they're going to have their staff. But, you know, who knows? I think he's very well connected. And in this day and age, folks, really like it's not about telling you, well, Zion Williamson can play and Bam Adebayo can play and this guy can't. Like anybody could do that for you. I think you need somebody who who could get information get accurate information and get p- these players to the table. The the only issue that with that bogues is this is like these players are going to go where they can make the most money that's going to be the best for them. Now maybe to break a tie it's great to have somebody with those connections but you know it's not like college where you hire the AU coach and you're going to get all these guys. You know everybody's sort of the same and depending on where your organization is with winning being a championship contender and other pieces, that's where a guy's going to go. But I think that, look, I like the fact that it's new blood in the league. It's not a retread of somebody else. It's not this guy or that guy. You know, Nico's new. He's run a department at Nike, so he's dealt with people before. So he could stabilize things and, you know, as far as like handling people and handling things. And whatever happens, happens. But their team's set. They've got a couple of moves they're going to make probably. But for the most part, they're good going forward, I think. And I think he'll be he'll be able to transition to the job pretty well. And for those that aren't familiar, the, the Nico Harrison, a Nike rep, quote unquote, what they do generally is they, they service their clients basically. Um, so they'll fly out to different cities. They might have, you know, Luka Doncic, go hang out with them for two or three days. Are you good? You need anything? You know, or here's a design of a shoe we're doing for it. Whatever it is, they have those conversations. These reps would basically be on the road as much as NBA players. They fly into every city with with different Nike players they have on different squads, take them to a nice steak, lobster dinner, catch up, talk shit, maybe party with them and then go on to the next city. That's kind of the role. Um, Nico Harrison was obviously at the higher end of that role when he's dealing with your Kobe's and whatnot, but every Nike player generally has a rep. But, folks, what he was doing probably the last five years is he ran the whole department. The whole department, so yeah, he but he was, still recruit, the, he was but, still on the road with those. He's still catching up with those bigger guys is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But he's not, right. he's not so much gone. He's not doing 50-odd Nike players, but he's definitely doing the top four or five. But um, then below him, there'd be another three or – you know, there'd be another guy below him that has a case a case of five players and then another, another guy below him that has a case of five players. That's generally how it's worked and that's how it was when I got in the league. I had a rep back in the day and, yeah, usually just – 
they're, they're the guy if you need anything to go between gear for family whatever it is you, you go to that guy and that's where nico started worked his way up and then obviously became the top of that food chain so that'll be interesting to see how that goes has jason kidd been made official i believe it has to dallas has, so yep. yeah jason four, kidd four years Jason Kidd has been officially signed by the Dallas Mavericks as a head coach. It's an interesting change, interesting pivot. It is now, is, is this his third head coaching job? I think it is. Yep. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. It, it definitely, I believe it pushes Jamal Mosley out the door. He was, um, we both thought a very viable and probably one of the one of the better candidates available for that job. And he was, you know, in the very house where they were hiring from. So we thought he had an opportunity, but we'll get to you know some comments about Rick Carlisle made about that later on, but Mosley's out. But how do you how do you see Jason Kidd going back to Dallas? Was obviously there as a player and, and part of their part of their championship back in um, mid two thousands. Yeah, he's Dallas royalty. You know uh, for what he did with that championship, and um, later in his career when he came back and, and did what he did, he, he's definitely he's definitely royalty. The whole staff when I got there, he wasn't there when I was there, but like. Everyone spoke, support staff-wise, spoke so highly of him as far as being a leader, being somebody who was tough, being somebody who sort of, you know, wielded that team to a championship. And, you know, everybody sort of loves the guy. And I know that the advisors that was advising, Q, you know, Mark uh, about the job, you know, they obviously had him high on their list and that's what they wanted to do. And I think, look, it's it's a player you know, that's had a lot of success playing that position. He's a Hall of Famer. It's good to to add to Luca. Um, I, I think that hey, look, it's a it's just a different voice now. It's a different direction they're going. Um, I, I think he'll have some success. That team is built to win now, so I think that it's you don't have to go through um, growing pains. And and I think, like I said, I think. If they didn't have the pandemic and Dwight Powell going down two years ago, I think they would have run one around. And I think that this year, if they didn't have pandemic stuff strike as far as people getting COVID and the injury stuff bug they had to deal with, I think they 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 would have went you know at least a round out of it. I think that they could make the Western Conference Finals next year. I'm not that's not a guarantee or a definite, but I think it'll be good. I think he'll do well there. I think that. It'll be an interesting transition, but I think he'll do well. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. He's, he's, I think he's had a reputation as a pretty hard-nosed coach, which will be interesting to see how that goes with Luca. But I know some guys in Milwaukee and so on that were, you know, they said he was pretty hard-nosed with the way he, he was a long-practice guy, a hard-nosed practice guy. So, you know, it will be interesting to see how that all goes and how it all plays out with Luca. But on the segue from that, Rick Carlisle – confirmed to indiana we actually got one right pro again so we're starting to make a bad <laughs> habit of this but we had an inkling, don't do that. We had an inkling yeah, it was either that or or, or uh or milwaukee and milwaukee gets that gets that job it's a kind of um a homecoming as per se rick had a lot of success there back in the in the early 2000s but on his way out kind of subtly threw jamal mosley under the bus he was asked about about the head coaching role in uh, in dallas and all that kind of stuff and somewhat uh, passive aggressively you know said jason kidd should be the guy and and didn't even mention jamal mosley now some people have seen that as as a shot at mosley and and and, and kind of a shot towards jamal mosley's relationship with luca um rick potentially saw that as a threat to his coaching tenure there in dallas could be a reason why he saw the writing on the wall and left with two years remaining on his contract but not a, not a good thing for for jamal mosley not a good thing for even people to speculate in my opinion but um Hopefully, hopefully Jamal Mosley works it all out and, and gets on a, on another staff somewhere else. The coaching makeup of the NBA, it's so important to have 
an assistant coach that has relationships with players. Um, as a head coach, you need that. You need multiple because, first of all, I've worked with Jamal for four years. I knew him when he was a player in Spain. When I was working for Boston, he had some. Um, he had a friend that was in, in the Boston area, and they actually came to the facility to work out. And that's where I, I met him, like, close to 20 years ago. And then, you know, I got a chance to work with him for four years. And, first of all, there's not a more loyal guy that I've ever – one of the most loyal people that I've worked with as far as being a good guy – you know, doing whatever it needed to be done to sort of help the situation. He's built up from being an intern in Denver and all the way up to doing what he does now. Um, but I, I love Jamal. He's a good guy. He's a good person. He's a great basketball guy. Um, but and here's a, it's an interesting dynamic because as a head coach, there are going to be players, all 30 head coaches. So it's not just one guy. There's going to be at times where every player hates you at some point. You're going to have to say something that's like off key. You're going to have to push some buttons and players are going to hate you from time to time. And you're going to need these assistant coaches that are firemen that are going to put these fucking fires out and build. And, and the only way you build, the only way you put these fires out is to build a relationship for months, if not years, and have that relationship when things go a little bit bad for a short period of time where you could say, look, yeah, the coach is being a little bit of a fucking asshole today. But you know what? This is why he was doing it. And we got to get past that shit. And we got to get back on fucking track. You need coaches who do that. I've worked with plenty of those guys that was fucking, that knew every play in the book, that was in every fucking coaches meeting, but never spent any time with fucking players. And then when shit goes bad, they did two things. They either hid in their fucking cubicle until the fire got put out by somebody else, or they tried to put the fire out with no fucking relationship with the kid, and the kid would basically tell you to go fuck off. So you need these two or three firemen on every staff, and because they're going to save you, because there's going to be times where shit goes really bad, really fucking bad, and these guys are going to save the whole thing by having that relationship with those players. And the problem that happens... Bogues is this. When shit goes bad and you get fired or things are going really bad and you're nosediving, you start to like see tigers in the wall and you start to see these illusions of people fucking you when they're not really fucking you. You know, where they're, they're like, they need, he need, like, that's Jamal. Like, every player that I've ever dealt with, like in Dallas, loves Jamal, right? And he has these relationships with players. But like, you need to allow him to have that relationship. Because when he saves you when things are bad, you can't just say, well, step away when things are good or things are going really bad. Like, he needs those relationships to keep this thing going. Now, the climate of assistant coaches in the league this, these, these past couple of years, you need to attach yourself to certain players, certain really good players, to help your employment going forward to get a head job. That's just part of it. Sometimes when you're a head coach for 10, 12, 15, 20 years, you forget what it was like to be an assistant. And like moving up and what it took to move up. So you're making millions of dollars and you've always been a head coach now. You're sort of on that gravy train. Well, you forget what it was like to like be that assistant wanting to make that jump from 500 grand to three and a half million to be a fuck or four million to be a head coach and move forward. I just think that that's what happened. And like, like again, I wasn't there the last couple of years, so I don't really know. I haven't really talked to Jamal a lot, but I just think it's one of those things when things go bad. Then you start saying, all right, who fucked me out the door? And it's probably one of those deals, in my opinion, you know, because I've seen this happen in many places. 
where like everything was good. They loved the fact that these people had relationships with players. And then when shit was going bad, they try to pull that relationship back and be like, well, that, you know, that guy fucked me out the door. I just don't think that happened. That's not Jamal's style. But again, I wasn't in the building. I'm just sort of going on past experiences and my experience with Jamal, which has always been pretty good. The whole role of an assistant coach to an extent is good cop to the head coach, bad cop. Like you said, there's a period in every season where even your best player hates your head coach because they, they got into it, whatever, right? So a big job title, a job role, job description for an assistant is to, to to smooth those things over. Like, you know, you're good. Keep, you know, keep being aggressive. You know, he's on you this week. Don't worry about it. And yeah, you can't, you can't just take the good, the good of that relationship when they're doing that, but not the not the bad as well, which is, you know, sometimes they're going to have a lunch meeting and, and be shooting the shit and it might look more friendly than other times. And that's just a part of the business. I don't think Jamal, you know, has that in him too much to trying to, trying to plot to take Rick Carlisle's job. But I think, I think you hit on the head. I think Rick probably saw some ghosts that weren't there and pivoted accordingly and hadn't got another extension, was probably discussing it, was probably trying to get a couple more years at the end of his deal. Mavs probably said, let's hold fire on that. And then they mutually agreed to part ways with Rick obviously having something else in the works, which we called. You know, Rick Carlisle is not a silly man and we called that on the last episode. He had something in the works to, to opt out of those last two years and he did, but hopefully – um you know, hopefully Dallas can get it right and hopefully, you know, Indiana can can bounce back. That's going to be an interesting one too because, you know, the, the guy they fired was loose, was a loose cannon and was very, very aggressive. Now Rick Rick is more of a strategic loose and, and he can get into you more strategically than just railing you and cussing you out. So I think some of those players are going to get a, a bit of a surprise. It's not going to be as easy as they thought and an easy transition from a hard-nosed coach to another hard-nosed coach, in my opinion. A couple of things here. I think this is a perfect job for Rick because of the fact that they're a hard-nosed team. They've got like hard-nosed players in the team. He loves Malcolm Brogdon, probably would have drafted him in the top 10 coming out, even with his injury issues coming out for the draft. So he's always been a Malcolm Brogdon fan. They've got like these solid players like Sabonis and Brogdon and McDermott, Turner. And I, I probably Turner will probably get traded or look to leave from what I've heard. You know, Karis Levert. So Rick's going to be always prepared. First of all, He's not going to be like the last coach and just like alienate everybody. He reads the room really well. He's going to organize those guys and put them in good position. There's not a big, there's not a big, like, it's not a lot of pressure to win there. You know, they're an eight to 10 team. You know, any type of a little bit of improvement is going to be good for them and good for him. They don't have to worry about Rick with like being prepared or, you know, he's going to, he's going to definitely, you know, try to forge those relationships with Brogdon and Sabonis right away, you know, and, and he's already had McDermott before and Glavert, you know, so I think McConnell will be a good point guard for him. I think he'll be okay there. There's not going to be a superstar in the locker room that sort of like demands things. So it's like he, he, he's probably gets, he's probably allowed to coach that team a little bit more. He doesn't have to worry about as much, you know, as trying to make people happy. So, I think he'd be good there. It'd be solid. Uh, the problem is they're not going like way high anytime soon. You know, they they tend to not really spend in free agency like crazy. And I don't know how much more they could add to that team. And I just don't see them making huge jumps just talent-wise with that team. But they do have an interesting dynamic with players. And um, 
it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. But I think it's a, you know, look, he doesn't have to, you know how it is, Bobes, with this, especially if you, if you're coaching these other superstars and other teams, sometimes it, it's hard to coach him. It's hard to do what you want to do. I think with this group, you could probably do a little bit more of what you want to do. I agree. Yeah. There's no, there's no standout max superstar overbearing guy on that team. I think that suits to, to Rick Carlisle's needs and coaching style. I totally agree with you. Ime Odoka, um, you called this one. You said Boston were going to go with a um, an African-American candidate. They did. Ime Odoka. How do you see that hiring? I mean, he's he's highly touted. I mean, I think it's a it's a great hiring by Boston. He's been he's been chased by a few teams over the years, and I think Boston's a, a big job, but a good job, and I think he'll be he'll be a decent hiring there. It's a good hire. It's a solid hire. He's 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 worked it for a long time. Uh, respected player, respected role player throughout his career, and then he go you know play you know worked in the NBA for a long time as an assistant in multiple places. I think this is a good hire. It's a solid hire. Um, I don't think coaching was a problem. I think the roster is more of a problem than the coaching was. I think that the, he'd be good there. I think he, he, he has a, a chance to grow. My only issue with this, Bogues, is this, like it, just the whole Celtic situation. You you sort of made changes based on lack of production in the playoffs. You're getting a coach who's a first-year coach who's going to have his growing pains like everybody else. Your team's not just overly talented, so you're not like a Steve Nash or a Ty Lue in Cleveland where you're stepping into this great team right away. So there is going to be some type of uh, you know growing pain there. You got Jason Tatum that needs to, you know, he does all this scoring-wise and he's, he do, he's done a great job with that, but he needs to sort of be a little bit different how he approaches, you know, the other side of the ball and just being more gritty and more tough. You got Jalen Brown who needs to do a little bit. Those two are, are obviously clearly their best two players and need to do something going forward. Even though Marcus Smart, I mean, um, even though Kemba Walker has been hurt in the past, you know, they trade him. That's a lot of firepower going out the door, even even though he's been hurt a lot and you replace him with Al Horford. So obviously, offensively, you took a hit there. I just, you know, I think that Boston you, Boston needs to at least let, let Adoka sort of get into the job a little bit and sort of grow with this and take a year or two to sort of really figure this thing out. But the clock's ticking on these two guys you just signed, and you know how this shit goes. You start losing, you start like underperforming a little bit more in the playoffs. You've already underperformed, you know, last year, and you're going into this like, you don't want to go into this funk where you might lose some of your best players. So they just got to let this guy coach, let him grow. You know, they got a decent roster, but... I think it's a great hire. I think it's someone who needs experience. It's a good job. They get that experience. They'll embrace them. The ownership groups there, you know, is very good. The, the fan base is outstanding. Um, I, I think that it's a it's a solid hire for sure. With this, I, th- I think it's a great hire and and a good a good position to take by Udoka because you're not walking into a, a rebuild. I think they're they've got a chance to be a competitive team. They're a few tweaks away again from being you know, being up there in the Eastern Conference. So I think it's a good job to walk into. Like you said, the fan base, it's a great organization. Very, The history is rich, um, but they, they have a good roster still. They've still got a very competitive roster. So Chauncey Billups has been confirmed to the Portland Trailblazers. Dame ha- has approved. Um, I think 
Chauncey obviously has been highly touted as the next guy to go from the booth to the uh, the bench, and he's been hired. Um, these these hirings to me are always interesting because you can only base it on commentary. <laughs> um, you can't really base it on yeah. any, anything else. So it's it's kind of you know we know for a fact you can be the most well spoken commentator in the world, but you might not have that people rapport. Um, managing a squad of 15 players, training staff, strength coaches, GM on your ass about why aren't you playing my guy. So we don't really know how it'll go. I think you know, anticipate it going okay. Um, Dame likes the hiring, which was which was key. If he, if he didn't like what was hired, there were rumblings that he would have requested a trade. I think the organization knew that and ended up cowering. First off, how do you how do you see the Chauncey? What can you tell us about Chauncey Billups? We, we know what he was like as a player, but what have you heard coaching-wise? Good player mentor. You know, knows the game like that and, you know, it's good little players in the Clippers. Here's the thing, folks. You, f- you fired a top 12 coach in the league. You know, not the best, not top five, but somewhere in the top 10 to top 12 coaches in the league and Terry Stutz. You have a flawed roster that's obviously flawed. And you had a coach that was one of the better coaches in the league and they couldn't figure it out and they couldn't get past a certain hump. I- I'm-, I'm sure there was... You know, something maybe he could have done a little different. Maybe he could have tweaked some things. Could have been a little bit better, maybe. But your your roster's flawed, especially in the defensive end. And now you're touting Chauncey Billups as someone who could fix this. Well, Dave Lillard liked Terry Stotts. McCollum liked Terry Stotts. No one hated Terry Stotts. So it wasn't a a relationship thing. It was something that they just couldn't get past a certain round and and they felt as though it was need for a change. Now you've got a rookie coach who's never really coached before. He's been there one year. And you had a more most mostly veteran team with the Clippers. So it's not like he had to do a lot of like, you know, building this thing up. And it wasn't like he was there for five years. He was there for a year. So he's going to have growing pains like every other coach. And I do know that the owner wanted Becky Hammond and the GM wanted, um, wanted Chauncey. So it was interesting power dynamic of how they got that done. Um, I think like anything else, it's going to be a power struggle, not a power struggle, but it's going to be a learning curve. And he's going to have to, you know, take his lumps. But again, you're sitting on Dame Lillard who might leave. And like, you need to sort of make this jump. And if you don't make this jump, you might lose this kid. So it's just a very interesting thing to hire somebody without coaching experience. Look, it's different if this was like Brooklyn and you gave it to Chauncey Billups. You know, we're like, these guys are going to cover up a lot of your coaching first year coaching flaws and you could build into the position. You know, you might, you might make some mistakes in the playoffs, but you're going to go pretty far regardless of, it, you know, what kind of coach you are. But now you have a situation where it's not a turnkey situation. Yes, you'll score a lot of points. Yes, you'll, you'll be a playoff team, especially that 19 teams fucking make it in each, each division now with the play in. So you're going to, you're going to be in a situation where you could still make the playoffs and do okay. But now you have a first-year coach that's never coached before. And you need to make a jump in the playoffs. And you just fired a coach that was really fucking good. And I've heard from people that, you know, Norman Powell, you know, might be looking to leave because of his, you know, sort of his sort of role in the offense. So, you know, and Powell has got a team, a player option that he's going to opt out of and get a bigger deal. So it'll be interesting situation of how they handle it and what Chauncey does 
I think Chauncey could be okay. Look, anybody could coach in the NBA that just has any type of background in this. They got to build in the position. They need a good, a good team that's going to win some games. Take that little pressure off their back by winning games and having talent. You got one all, you got one franchise player, and you got a borderline all star in McCollum. So you've got talent, but you're in the West, and there's a lot to contend with with that. So. It'll be interesting. I don't expect them to. I don't expect them to be red fucking hour back right off the bat. I expect it to be a struggle, and I expect to see you know maybe some you know deals they have to deal with at the end of the year with if they don't really go far in the playoffs. Is that your son barking again? Yeah, it's my son barking again. I'm gonna fucking slap the shit out of him if you don't shut up in a second. <laughs> Jokingly, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jokingly, well, yeah, of course. Domestic violence cases. The Chauncey hiring to me was the ultimate woke watch hiring of the NBA. Right, so as you mentioned, the owner who is female, I believe now, wanted uh, you know a female hiring in, in Becky Hammond, and and then they ended up going with Chauncey. There's been a big pushback of that that it's bullshit, it's not fair, it should have been a woman, blah 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 blah. Second point that's come up now is there's a historical Chauncey Billups sexual assault case that is now being aired because he got the head coaching job over a woman. Now, I heard an interesting take from um, Ethan Sherwood Strauss's pod. House of Strauss, so check that out. Um, really good basketball pod where he he made a point around the hiring of Jason Kidd where there were some issues around that. So the sexual assault uh, case, uh, I think he was found he was found innocent. He was never charged. That case is okay if Chauncey's commentating, right? That, that that case is okay if if you're an assistant coach, for instance, or if you're a scout. That coach that 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 sexual assault case is perfectly okay. But the moment you go for a head coaching job, pro, it becomes a huge issue. Is that is that all is that all we're saying? So as as an assistant coach, we can live with we can live with the sexual assault case. As a commentator, ah, oh, that's okay too. But head, you're not getting a head coaching job over a woman. We're gonna we're gonna really kick um kick the tires about that one. Yeah, it, it's look if that's gonna be a problem, which obviously that is, that is a big deal. Oh no doubt, we're not condoning we're not condoning what happened by any means. What I understand is he's he's not being charged and and he was he's innocent. As, as of now, I mean, there's a, a girl that's come out and said she was she was assaulted. It was historical, so we're not condoning that. If it's happened, whole separate situation. But it's just it's just the the, the funniness of of it leading from a female not getting the job. This has been dug out, and like I said, is it, so it's no one's no one's mentioned this when he was a commentator or potentially an assistant coach. That that's kind of more my point with this. Yeah. So like my point, just like you said, if I'm sitting there as a as, as the organization. And he was allowed to be a commentator. He was allowed to be an assistant coach. All these background checks and everything was good. And they didn't hold the line and saying, well, no, he's not good to be in this. You know, we, this is unforgivable, unmistakable. We, we, we need this guy out. So then you hold the line. But if I'm the organization and ESPN, the worldwide leader, he's allowed to work for them. He's allowed to work for, you know, almost be a GM of Cleveland if he didn't turn it down. And then he's allowed to be, you know, work with the Clippers. If I'm there, I'm sitting there and say, wait a minute, the NBA has to do background checks on everybody. So the NBA, like the NBA has got to approve or not approve you first. And then the team does it. And then you could sort of do your thing. If all this stuff happened, as far as like people okay in him, I would say it's okay. You know, if I if he's already been through the ring in the last few years and it hasn't stopped him from getting a job post post playing career, and now I, I, all of a sudden I'm going to say, well, this is a huge deal now. You know, and plus it's a really liberal town, obviously in Portland, 
And, and of course, they're going to go nuts about it. But I obviously, like I said, I, like you said, I don't condone this at all, you know, it, it, at all. But I'm saying like now they make it a big deal of it all of a sudden. But like, why didn't they make a big deal of it when he was at ESPN? Why didn't they make a big deal of it there? Again, it's just this clickbait stuff and people just waiting in the woods for somebody to take a job and then go nuts about it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, just a work crazy. cancel culture. It's just, it's a cancer on society. I mean, you know, there, there are instances where maybe one out of a hundred, they get right. But like, this is just, it's just ridiculous. And it's, it's moving the deck, deck chairs on the Titanic, as you would say, like, you know. Nice. You know, so it's just, it's just one of those things that I just, I just caught it. And I'm like, first I saw the people firing up about the Becky Hammond not getting it and it's sexism and all this kind of stuff. And then that's now turned into, well, well Chauncey wants, you know, allegedly, assaulted a uh, a female back in the day so you're like okay uh, where are we where are we going with this and you know like like i said it's just it's it's not it's just uh, it's just a crazy time but we'll move on from that jock vaughn is gaining traction for the pelicans role that that role has kind of been quiet there hasn't been a whole lot of attention about that one which has been interesting now pro i'm hearing something interesting from that organization i'm hearing there's been please players, do there's been players sitting in the meetings to hire the next coach how do you feel about that Ah, oh, folks, I don't know, man. Like, obviously, the player's going to have, you know, the, the player's going to have to deal with these coaches and, you know, when you hire the head coach. In the but, meeting, though, for the interview? I mean, geez. This is true. No, no, this is true. I, I'm not, I'm against it. I, I Look, if it's your franchise player, I'm not talking about a franchise player who's a top 50 player. If it's a franchise player, it's a complete difference maker. And you want to keep them happy? I would say so. Maybe. But if you have like multiple players in on, on these meetings, then it's sort of a shit show. If you're running this organization, if you're the owner, if you're the president of basketball operations, if you're the GM, whatever you are, and you're running the team, like you should be able to make this decision. And yes, you might want to run it by like if you have finalists and you say, hey, Zion or hey, whoever that is in the meeting, it's down to these two. What do you think? I'd like your feedback. But... To have them in the meeting, yeah, I'm not on board with that stuff. But that's that's me. I, you know, I run my fantasy basketball team. Hey, coach, how are you going to get me touches? How are you going to get me buckets, coach? You're hired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. If I'm if I'm that fucking guy, I'm finding a way to get eleven of those guys that are in that meeting fucking twelve shots a game, or eighteen shots a game. So. Yeah, I'm running everything yeah, for you. A, You're my guy. I'm running everything for you. Max contract. Yeah. Hi, hire me. Sit sit down, bro. <laughs> Steve Adams, I'm getting you 14 shots. Don't tell Zion. Hey, Zion, nah, fuck that. I'm not getting Steve in those shots. I'm getting you those shots. You're texting each one of them in the meeting. Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that'll, be, that'll be an interesting deal, dude. Yeah. And just finally, Sam Cassell and Wes Unsell Jr. are the wizard coaching favorites as of today. Sam Cassell has been a, a pretty big name assistant coach now for a number of years. So I think he, I think he has a legit opportunity for that wizard's job, bro. Yeah, he's been there before. Uh, I, I've heard they want to go African-American or minority on the hire. Um, Wes Unsell's been around before. Sam Cassell's been, you know, up for some head jobs. Look, he's been an assistant coach for a long time. He's been an assistant coach. He's been with Doc Rivers a long time. He's He was in Washington. Um, he's been in multiple places. People like him. If, if you want to go somebody with, you know, that doesn't have a lot of head coaching experience, and if you're going to go the minority route, you know, ex-player route as well, that'll be a fantastic person to sort of give a chance to. 
I think I think that Cassell will have a really good chance. I've heard Unseld was is the front runner, but that's just me. I'm not sure how accurate that is. But two guys that have been around a long time. Unseld's been doing this for a long time. Cassell has been doing this a long time. I think it's it's time to give one of those guys an opportunity. I think again, I think as much fresh blood into the league. I don't care what background you have or gender you have, but I think there's much fresh blood into the league and giving more people opportunities just makes the league better as far as like development of new coaches into the into the you know NBA. Yeah. Even though those two guys have been in the league forever, bro. Yeah, fresh blood as head coaches. <laughs> you know, don't worry. Like I, I know you still think red fucking hour back coaches the Boston Celtics, brother. I know you've read that on Google, but no, that's yeah. what I meant. Like fresh blood as far as head coaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I also heard donuts have the same nutrients as um as a salad. That might not be right neither. But you need to get them at Whole Foods. If you get them at Whole Foods, <laughs> right. totally correct. <laughs> yes, as long as they're from Whole Foods. All right, we'll finish this coaching carousel off with the Los Angeles Lakers have, have lost a minority owner. He has sold 27% um, of his stake. He has uh, sold that to – his name is Philip Anschutz, and he has sold that to some um, Dodgers, some LA Dodgers owners. The valuation was reportedly between 4.6 billion and 5 billion uh, by Forbes this year. So, pretty big news, just because a 27 percent owner of, of any club is is a guy that's probably making some decisions from the company owner and entertainment of the group called AEG. So, a little bit of news there. I mean, the, what was surprising to me is I thought the Lakers would be valued at more than four to five billion considering they're the Lakers when you've got some some small market teams valued at two to three billion. I thought, you know, automatically bumped the Lakers two to three X on that, but maybe there was some overinflation over the last couple of years for some of these small markets. Folks, it's crazy. No, no question about it. Like, the Clippers, who didn't even own their own building, got sold for $2 billion, you know, and that was before the boom really started with these organizations. You know, um, I believe they own the Staples Center, if I'm not mistaken. So they own their own building. They're the most one of the most recognizable franchises in all pro sports, and it's five. It's only five billion dollars. It's crazy, but yeah, it's a, it's a little bit nuts. So it's a lot of money. Don't get us wrong, people. Five billion is a lot, but we're just comparing that to when you're comparing it to your Milwaukee's of the world and um, the Clippers of the world. You'd think they'd be two, three, four X on those teams. But, you know, it was just a surprising number that I saw. But um, moving on, Pro, we have – I think we have the all-time major race baiting week in the NBA I've ever seen, Pro. So uh, – Well, give it a week, but go ahead. Oh, Adam, this is a pretty hard hard week to beat. And we just had a, we just had a late ad on the sheet this morning as well when I woke up. This is one of the all-time ones. So let's start major race baiting week with this one. Jay Williams – known for some great analysis over the, over the years. He calls Ime Adoka hiring the first head coach of, of color for the Boston Celtics. So besides Bill Russell, KC Jones, Imel Carr, Tom Saunders, and get this, Doc Rivers just won you a championship a decade ago. He thought it was the first hiring of a person of color. The best part of this wasn't that. It was a day later, <laughs> Jay Williams putting out a statement saying that his account was hacked. And rest assured, Pro, he has, now, he has now changed his passcode so it doesn't happen again. So, Pro, the balls on these hackers to hack into someone's account and, and tweet something about making a mistake about the hiring of a head coach and it being the first head coach of color for the Boston Celtics. These, these hackers just get more brazen by day, Pro. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I saw the thing and I was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> are you serious? And then, of course, the whole I got hacked thing and that just sort of like you can murder, you could order a murder of 2.8 billion people 
or, you know, you could like do whatever you want. As long as you are hacked, everything is cool. And I think it was one of those things where he was excited for it. He wanted to put something out. Of course, everybody's got to be like, you know, quoting like everybody wants to make the quote Hall of Fame every time they tweet something out on a daily basis. So he probably wanted to be first. He probably wanted to do that. He had that rearing to go and then he did it. And then he figured out after 28 million and he's trended on Twitter probably for like 28 <laughs> hours. He probably said, yeah, I might need to fucking issue this statement. But yeah, uh, it's just one of those things. Man. I mean, he would have got less less pushback for a dick pic. So anyhow, <laughs> uh, we'll move on to the next one because we've got a fair few to get through. It's, it's the MVP of, of this kind of stuff in, in Mark J. Spears, um, one of our esteemed journalists and um, writers he basically nice. had an issue with the paces. So this was it. This was his three or four pronged tweet, which I'll read out right now. The paces didn't appear to go through a diverse process in hiring coach Rick Carlisle. G League Ignite coach Brian Shaw, who is black, had a phone conversation about the job, but the source <laughs> said a formal interview was never scheduled. It's widely believed the job was always Carlisle's. Ironically, pro, Rick Carlisle is the president of the National Basketball Coaches Association. NBCA leadership justly addressed its concern on February 24th about its concern and level of disappointment about Minnesota's lack of diverse search for a head coach before hiring Chris Finch, which we spoke about probably 10 or 15 episodes ago. So the big question mm -hmm. now is how does the Coaches Association feel about the hiring process of Rick Carlisle by the Pacers without a thorough and diverse interview process? Here we go again, one former NBA head coach who is black said, before hiring Nate Bjorken in 2020, the Pacers did have a, di a diverse hiring process as they interviewed Chauncey Billups, Darvin Ham, Stephen Silas, Jamal Mosley, and Becky Hammond for the job opening. I have a few thoughts on this. One is it's ridiculous. It's obvious that Ricardo was their guy from the start, and they have every right to do that if they thought that was their guy. They don't need to go through any process according to race, religion, sex, or you know whatever, sexuality. Mm -hmm. Creed, whatever. I think that's ridiculous. And if they thought they had their guy and they knew he was bouncing from Dallas, so be it. But um, I think Spears' take now is, is just ridiculous. I haven't seen that same take for Portland. I haven't seen it for, for Boston. I haven't seen it for other teams that are actually, as you've heard from your sources, have actually put a priority on we want to hire a, um, a person of color or, or an African-American, which, you know, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. I don't agree with with labeling people like that, but hasn't made any comments about that. But the twist in all this is the irony of it all is, is Rick Carlisle being hit with this because as we know, he was pretty boisterous on the Chris Finch thing and he was also pretty boisterous on the Lloyd Pierce firing when he when he brought politics mm -hmm. in saying that um, – Lloyd Pierce shouldn't have been fired because he turned Atlanta or the state of Georgia from Republican to Democrat, so he shouldn't be fired. So I just found some irony that, that Rick Carlisle is now, you know, he was once woke and with the crew, but now he's taking a job that wasn't diverse enough and he's, he's, he's copping it on the chin a little bit, pro. Well, it's $29 million. I mean, let's be honest. Like, it's not even about Rick. It's more about anybody in the world, almost everybody in the world. When it comes to yourself, you're a lot different as far as how you deal with these things, right? Like if it's you and that's just it, like that's just natural with anybody. And, and, and these rules go out the window when it's you, but, but when you're not involved with it, now you could sort of, you know, you could have these different views. That's called hypocrisy. I do believe that- The word for it's hypocrisy, yeah, bro. I, it's a big word though, but- Oh, my fault. Yeah. A 2.01 grade point average I graduated <laughs> with, I wasn't very bright. But when it comes to like- that whole Indiana thing, they should be able to do what they want to do. I believe that 
if I was negotiating and and like they were like, if I was Rick and you know, and I wanted the Pacers job, but they were like, well, we got to interview this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. You're gonna shut that shit down because a you you're probably one of the better coaches on the market right now, and you know, and all you got to say is, well, wait a minute, Washington's gonna interview me next week, or Boston's gonna whatever it is, and then they're gonna be like, well, we can't lose Rick Carlisle, we're gonna sign him to yesterday. But you know how these deals are; they're already pre-done. And they should be able to do what they do. But yeah, when it comes to like doing the right thing, if you're not involved with it, you, you could quote it, whoever you want to quote. But when you're involved with it, that shit goes out the window, in my opinion. And Mark Spears, it's just, it's again, it's a fucking violin that never stops. Like, <laughs> why don't you praise everybody? Like, praise everybody. Like, if you're going to do this, praise everybody. Praise white people. Praise black people. Praise every type of person. You know, but don't just like black people are the only ones that get fucked in the NBA or this thing's wrong. This thing's wrong when, you know, but you're okay with other stuff. But like, you know, if you just read his Twitter line, it's always about that shit. Always. Once a week. You know, like, once a week. Yeah. St- Stephen A. Smith and stuff sometimes goes back and forth with it, which I can respect. If you take, if you take, like, if, if you take a stance on something tomorrow, but then, like, like the next time you just don't go to that every time. If it's not, you know, a black person got fucked because he's black, but a black person got beat out because he got beat out. But, you know, you can go back and forth once in a while. That's actually having an opinion. But if it's always going to be one side of it, like, it's not like that all the time. And if you're just going to make every point to say that every time, it's just, it's a broken fucking record. I'm tired of hearing about it from him. You well, know, like. I've been on time. record. I'll say it. I've said it once. I'll say it again. I, I, all, all I believe is this, this just promotes token token interviews it, it really does it's just like okay oh, we, we we better we better we better interview a woman we better interview this many people of color we better interview this many white people we better interview this many former players it just creates tokenism so okay let's say let's say i've got a job opening pro and and and, and you find out okay i'm going to i'm, I'm going to interview Andrew Bogut for it because we need a seven footer as part of the interview process and, and we're gonna hire you because we need a you know a person with a big body a body, fat, body fat percentage <laughs> to interview for the yes, job yeah but yeah, jokes, yeah. Jokes aside, like, how would you feel going to the interview knowing that that you really have no, you really have no chance for this interview? We've got our guy, but Mark Spears says we're going to have a diverse process and make sure we just tick some boxes. I'll be like, fuck you and your interview. I don't want it. I don't want to be hired because of anything other than what my skill is going to bring to this team, this coaching, this coaching job, this GM job, this whatever. I don't care what it is. But I mean, where are we? As I mean, it's just as a society, if that's if that's the most important thing. And that's what we're looking at. Appearances. I mean, we're in some trouble. Yeah, it never, it never fucking stop. It's never gonna stop. You know, in society in general, but it, in ba- in this thing, it's just never gonna stop because people don't see it fairly. They don't look at it fairly and say, you know what? In this particular situation, yeah, maybe he did get fucked over like race wise. But the next situation is like, nah, it wasn't really that. Here's what was really going on. I can see that. So I'm going to go with this side on this argument. You can't just like do it. Like you can't rub a stamp it every fucking time. And it just, it just gets it gets boring after a while. Same I don't much. blame what Indiana did. Yeah, mm. I'm not going to hire Brian fucking Shaw over Rick Carlisle. Come on. You know, that's sort of like taking me over you in a fucking fitness contest in triathlon. <laughs> I mean, give me a fucking break. Come on. Anyway, we've got a, a, another two to get through, funnily enough. 
Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's been it's been a big week. It's been a big week in racial relations. Jalen Rose says Kevin Love, the only white player on the team for the USA team, the dream team coming up at the Olympics, is a token because the NBA is afraid to send an all-black team to the Olympics. Kicker, 2016, the team was all black. Bro? Yeah, that's, you know, the f- that's the first thing that comes to mind. That Just do your homework a little bit. That's first thing. Second thing is Kevin Love, okay? When you're in an Olympic competition, and you know this better than anybody, like you've been in an Olympic competition multiple times. Sometimes it's good to have different type of players, even if that player isn't like overall a great player, but they fit a need in a role. It's sort of like when Tayshawn Prince was like, I think he was in the 08 team or the 12 team, and they took Tayshawn Prince, who couldn't really shoot, but he fit a need. And he wasn't a great player in the league, but he fit a need. Kevin Love, first of all, was on the team in 2012. So it's sort of a legacy thing, first of all. You know, like if he's been in the Olympic program and maybe he wasn't healthy, you know, in 16 to play, I'm not sure about that. But then, you know, they invite him again because of legacy and what have you. But he fits a need. In international competition, having a stretch big is fine. But making that comment to me is just, again, Jalen's thing. Like that's most of Jalen's thing. He's not, he's not as bad as Mark Spears. You know, he's not as bad as Mark Spears on this stuff. But this is a little out of line. But again, it, it riles people up and he knows he can do that. And it's a pretty popular thing to do. And it, and it gives him credibility to just to have that, you know, just to sort of have this take on it. But it's not, it's completely untrue. A, he's been on the team before. B, 2016, hello. And C, like Kevin Love actually has a skill that could help their team out. Even if he's going to be a role player barely playing, he could stretch the floor and shoot in certain situations when that sort of opportunity presents itself in an international competition. Yes. What are your thoughts on it? Totally agree. Small ball lineup. Look, he's not in the best form. How does he make it? Who knows? But it's 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 obvious it's a need position. Like they want to stretch five that can rebound. So you've got what? Who do you have him? You've got maybe Brooke Lopez who played last time. You've got a few other guys maybe that are stretch fives that can rebound at the level of of a of a Kevin Love. I mean, let's be honest. It's just you're basically with the, the squad they're putting together. They've got a lot of a lot of good scoring pieces. They don't need another guy that's an ISO guy. That, that I'm sure. Yeah, there's 10, 10, 15 better players at that position than Kevin Love. But it's a need, and just the fact that you're going to actually count skin colors on a team first and foremost, and actually make a comment on it is fucking ridiculous in its own mind. I don't care what country it is. You're gonna go. You're gonna go to China and then do the same thing. How do you think that national yeah, team's looking? You know, like it's just, yeah. it's just, it's a, a racist thing. It is. It's just a, like you said, it's to rile people up and we're discussing it. I'm not too riled up by any of these because I think they're all blatant. Every one of these is blatantly stupid, but bro, none are bigger, <laughs> none are bigger than our guy, Scotty Pippins. Now, work up to oh, this one. God. Work up to this one, and I know this play. I was a big fan of Tony Kukoc back in the day, so I know this play very well. There's numerous stories that go with this. The night is Jordan had retired. It was Pippen's team, as per se. Tony Kukoc, you know, his star was growing. There was that night where a play was called for Tony Kukoc to take the last shot. Scotty Pippen infamously refused to take the court after head coach Phil Jackson called for Kukoc to take the shot instead of him during a pre-play timeout. 27 years later, Pippen spoke with Tyler R. Tynes of GQ Magazine about that night and a host of other topics saying that he thinks Phil Jackson's decision was a racial move. Here's a, here's a quote. I don't, think it, I don't think it's a mystery. You need to read between the fine lines. It was my first year playing without Michael Jordan. Why wouldn't I be taking the last shot? 
I've been through all the ups and downs, the battles of the Pistons, and now you got to insult me and tell me to take the ball out of bounds. I thought it was a pretty low blow. I felt like it was an opportunity to give Kukoc a rise. It was a racial move to give him a rise. After all, I've been through after all I've been through with this organization, now you're going to tell me to take the ball out and throw it to Tony Kukoc. You're insulting me. That's how I felt. So, a coach drawing up a play for Tony Kukoc was a racist play, bro. Both. It's fucking almost 30 years ago. He <laughs> spoke about this 18,000 fucking times. Oh, but the racial Look, takes a new one. To, the racial takes a new one. Like That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. If he said on day one, when he, the interview one, it was a racist move, I would have said, go fuck off. But I would have been like, you know what? That's what he thinks. That's what he thinks. But all of a sudden, after interview 27,421, you're automatically now going to go to the race race cut because I, you know, that's that to me is bullshit. A, it's not even true. It's a non-starter for me. It's just it's a fucking moronic statement. But the problem is, it's the nineteen thousand four hundred and twenty-first most fucked up moronic statement that he's made since he stopped playing. <laughs> so it's not like this is fucking new that he he says something moronic coming out of his fucking mouth, you know. And hey, look. Is your ego a little fucked up that he didn't call a play for you? Okay, it's understandable. Sitting out in your team, not understandable. But anyway, you did it. It is what it is. So, like, I understand that your ego is a little hurt that fucking Phil Jackson did that to you. It's your team, blah, 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 that bullshit. But come on, man. Like, Phil Jackson's racist. Come on. He might be condescending and a fucking prick, you know, and all this stuff and you know, didn't really win unless he had 27 Hall of Famers in his lineup. I get all that shit. You're going to fucking sit there and tell me he's a racist for calling a play for someone else? <laughs> Give me a fucking break. I, I, Come on. Man. I read it. I just, I, I didn't think it was real. I had to like, I had to check two or three different uh, articles just because uh, there's, I'm like, there's no way he said, there's no way he said that coach ran a play for this guy and it was race. It was, it was racism. And I'm just, there's no way anyone said that but he did say it and, and you just you just scratch your head at some of this shit and i'm not sure if it's a sign of the times there's a there's a maybe a you know it's it's trending to to talk about some sort of racism that didn't happen back in the day and i'm sure there is racism out there and sexism and all that not not denying that but um i, I don't even think the most wokest of woke would look at this and be like oh i think you're we're clutching at, we're clutching at straws a little bit he's having a tough week because fucking kevin durant sent him back into fucking KD shit on him yeah shit on him fucking ridiculously about you know not being a team player and you know and things like that i mean it's fucking amazing, man. You know, it's it is what it is. He's bitter. You know, he just he like he makes these. Look, I don't mind when a player makes a statement that you're like, this doesn't make a little bit of sense what he's saying. If you just start, you make a few of these comments here and there, but like he just overly does it. LeBron's better than Jordan this week. Then Jordan's better than LeBron next week, and then he just like I don't think he even knows what he fucking says half the time, and. You know, he just keeps on saying thing after thing, man. It's not a good one. It's not a good one. I heard there is also going to be a Scottie Pippen style tell on Michael Jordan in the works. So we'll see. We'll see if that um, gets up because that'll be a whole podcast in itself if it does. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, come on. Give me a fucking break. All right. Real quick. I don't know if you saw this one, but I, th I had a little giggle at this one. So Devin Booker reached out to Richard Hamilton about playing with a mask. That was reported by, I think, Rachel Nichols, possibly, or, or somebody. Uh-huh. What the fuck? 
Oh, seriously. <laughs> I saw this. I was you like, know, hold on. You call, like, my, my whole thing isn't that Booker did it. It's like this is reported and it was like a big deal. Like, he, he reached out to him about playing with a mask because, you know, for those that don't know, Richard Hamilton played most of his career in a mask. Nothing really changes, you know. I've, I've worn one. <laughs> but I'm just thinking like – how did that conversation go? Like, hey man, give me some tips about playing with a mask. Well, you you do you do exactly what you usually do, but you've just got something on your face and phone call. Remember, like last episode or two episodes ago, we talked about every day is a fucking day. Well, every little thing has to be turned into this fucking unbelievable, like changing of the God statement that that these players do. So, because, you know, maybe they talked about like a million different things and they finally said, oh, yeah, by the way, how's it, how it is playing with the mask? And then, oh, wow, they like, and everything has to be this big fucking story. Well, he reached out and, you know, Richard Hamilton had to walk him through the mask. And, you know, it was pivotal in his play the next couple of games playing with the, we're playing with the mask. Everything's like a story. Everything's front page news. And it's just, it gets a little fucking boring after a while, folks. It gets a little fucking boring. Oh, I mean, I, I just saw it and I, I, I just laughed because, I mean, anyone with a working brain can be like, what, like, where did this conversation go? But, um, yeah, inevitably it's, it's helped. I mean, Booker's, Booker's having, a, having a great playoff so far, so maybe, maybe um, Rip Hamilton gave him some gold. gold. But moving on to the, the, the lottery was announced last week. The first round picks go as follows. This is from number one. So the first pick goes to Detroit. Then we've got Houston, Cleveland, Toronto, Orlando, OKC, Golden State, which is Minnesota's pick. Orlando, which is from Chicago, Sacramento, New Orleans, Charlotte, San Antonio, Indiana, Golden State. And at 15, we have Washington. I want to go through the rest of them. What are you hearing? I feel like I feel like last draft, there was a lot of attention around trades and what was going to happen. There was going to be all these trades. And it kind of was a letdown. I think this season, I think there's going to be, I just, there's a lot of kind of silence and quietness going into this draft to an extent. I think we're going to see possibly a, a lot of trades in this draft. How, how do you see it? Do you think Detroit keeps a pick? Who do you have going number one? What's your take? I, I had the Cade Cunningham kid going number one. There's not really a clear cut great player in this draft, like, you know, a must need player. I think Cunningham and Mobley and and Jalen Suggs from Gonzaga are three players that have sort of been talked about a lot. I don't know if Detroit trades it or not. I think they'll they'll look to see what they can get. Look, I I don't understand what they can get for the number one pick that's really going to improve the situation. The team's pretty bad. They got a couple of young players that are just okay. You don't have anything really going forward except like Grant, you know, and, and, and a couple of young players. So, like, to trade the pick, to me, what are you going to get? You're going to get a veteran that's going to get you from, like, fucking 14 wins to 17 wins. Like, (laughs) I think keeping the pick, you keep your money down. You know, you're not going to acquire anybody that's going to, like, so you're going to acquire, like, a $20 million player for the number one pick. Like, I think you just keep the pick, develop that player. Look, it's just like Oklahoma City did when – Presti took over and they traded like Ray Allen and uh, Rashad Lewis and all that. Look, you're going to have this three or four year period, hopefully, that you're going to be in the lottery. So getting these players that can make an impact on your team for two or three straight classes in the draft before you start, you're going to have to start like doing the the second contracts on some of these players and then signing new guys and then winning. And then you're going to get knocked out of the lottery anyway. 
So I think taking advantage of having the number one pick to me would be the best thing you know, that they can do to get the number one pick, secure a good player, build them around him and Grant. And then you have all these other nice little young players you have. And then you go forward. I haven't, you know, I like Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State. Um, he's a 6'8 kid, high motor, could shoot it, shoots about 42% from three, 85 from the line. Good. I think he'll be a good second option. But again, he's got good size. He's a good kid. He could he could play. Um, not a great player. Not like a Kevin Durant or anything like this. Who's going to be a franchise type guy, in my opinion. But I think he could be a number two option on a team on a good playoff team. So I, I think that he'd be someone else that'd be good. And then um, the Mobley kid is a good player. Um, Eric, um, his name's Eric Mobley. I'm sorry, Evan Mobley played at USC. Good player. Got good size. He could run. You know, he's going to be a good player. Again, another second option guy. He's not really a stretch big. He's more of like a, a roller, maybe, maybe a little bit like Bam, you know, in the sense that he's got size. He could roll to the rim. Um, he's got a little bit of skill, but he just can't really shoot it from three. But he can get better at that. And then uh, you're going to hear about a kid named Jay, uh, Jalen Suggs who plays at Gonzaga. Uh, he's like a, a combo god, you know, good player, skilled you know, he's a little bit like Murray from Denver who could play both guard spots. He doesn't really shoot it great at 33 from three, but he was a solid player, a winner. He can guard, you know, he's got a decent basketball IQ, but I think he could score a little bit when given an opportunity. So there'll be some guys, I think, that, that there'll be some decent players, but I don't think anything great in the draft. Where do you think our guy, Josh Giddy, will, will fall to? He has a chance for top 10? I think possibility of top 10. I think I think possibility of top ten. I think anywhere from ten to you know ten to seventeen, depending on how the draft goes. You know, there's still a long ways to uh, go. You know, to get to the draft, but I think that um, I think ten to seventeen will be okay. Are you hearing anything different or anything come across you? No, desk? I haven't heard too much. I mean, he's 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 just got his head down, working out, um, just staying staying in shape and working on things. And all, like you said, all the workouts are starting now. You know. Golden State at seven would might be a little high, but that'd be that'd be good. If not, I hope he falls to Golden State at fourteen for selfish reasons. I think it's a good environment for him. We'll carry off the ball as we spoke about. Wouldn't be too bad. Um, look at some of those other picks around that vicinity, and I'm like New Orleans. Oof, wouldn't want him to go there. Charlotte, they've already got a guard. San Antonio is there at twelve, so that could be one. Indiana with old Rick. I don't know about that. So Golden State or San Antonio, I'd hope would be the ones that 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 get him. Orlando's. Orlando and Sacramento are, you know, eight and nine as well. I hope, I hope, you know, it doesn't go there. I'd, I'd prefer, if I had to pick, it'd be San Antonio at 12 or Golden State 14 or, or Golden State at seven. Um, I just don't think it would possibly go that high. I'd be, I think it would be around there. So hopefully he just mm-hmm. goes to a good team that'll, that'll actually spend time developing him. And they're in camp right now in, in LA and Joey hit me up. And I thought the same thing when I saw him play in Australia. Joe, Joe was like, I didn't realize he was so big. He's a big, he's a big yeah. guard, man. He's a big, big guard when you see him in person. I think that's going to be, you know, the advantage of whoever drafts him is there's so many things he can do with that size and 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 kind of game that he has playing the point. So I'm interested to to see where he goes. But we'll move on. We've got a few more things to get through. Australia Pro, 
Melbourne United are officially the champs, so the best team from start to finish, the deepest roster, the most expensive roster. They spent and they got rewarded. Um, your guy, Lawndale, was the finals MVP. Nice. So the finals MVP, had a, had a hell of a year, much deserved. Hope to see him in the NBA in the next couple of years, but a great series for him. Average double-double throughout it. It was kind of a lopsided series, to be honest. Perth were, as I said last week, were, was severely banged up and they were they were playing on a thread. The fact that they were even keeping these games within, within a couple of possessions um, is a big credit to the Perth Wildcats. Um, some other news, Craig Hutchison has reportedly purchased the Perth Wildcats, so a minority owner from Melbourne United has purchased the Perth Wildcats. They finally sold. We have also, the Sydney Kings have hired Chase Buford Pro, so from the head coach of the Wisconsin Herd, which was the G League team of the G League affiliate of the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, a lot of good things spoken about him. Obviously, the son of R.C. Buford, who is, is the GM at San Antonio. is a pretty well-connected guy and a pretty highly touted coach pro. Have you heard much uh, about Chase? I've heard he's a very serious kid that is a good coach. He's like he's a really hard worker. You know, he's very prepared, very organized. He's spent some time in other other places around you know around the world in basketball, and, he, and he's a good one. I think that he's a good player. My question, I mean, a good coach, I'm sorry. My question to you, did Bryce Cotton tweet out that this is a bullshit schedule NBA? They should have listened to me and, you know, <laughs> they, they, they should have done a better job of the schedule. I'm just wondering, did, they, uh, it did, did he do that? So, not yet. You know, he's the elder statesman of the league. Okay. Not yet, not yet. But Perth okay. on a pretty tight ship over there. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you know, he would uh, have a lot of ramifications if he did that. But, nah, he hasn't. So, um, but, yeah, if, if he's playing and, and they're healthy, I think it would have been a five-game series. But Melbourne United just too good. And congratulations to them. National team stuff, Ryan Brokeroff or or Brokov, how it's actually pronounced, pro, and Isaac Humphreys <laughs> have pulled out. They haven't even made the camp. Brokov has a few, um, you know, things that he's working through with some mental health, which he's been on record saying. So he's um, he's going to work on that, and Humphreys had an injury. So both those guys are out. And reportedly, we're, 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 you know, as we spoke about earlier, Simmons one foot in, one foot out leaning towards out as reports by numerous people in the media. So three big outs. So the, the squad is somewhat <laughs> starting to select itself as more and more people pull out. Hopefully, touch wood, no injuries. They, they have a players-only camp, which is going on right now in LA. The formal camp, I believe, starts around the 5th of next month, and then they then they get rolling after that. So we'll see how that goes, and we'll hopefully get a couple of those guys on the pod after selection. Moving on to stats, pro. Useful or useless? A few good ones here this, this time around. One that caught my because we we both watched this game and we're texting each other. The last 90 seconds of the NBA game two of the playoffs between Phoenix and LA took 33 minutes of runtime, pro. It's funny, Bogues, that you said that because I, I didn't even notice it was that long. I knew it was long, but my, my, v, my uh, not VCR, but I set it to record and my cable asked me, do I want, do you want to extend it an extra 30 minutes that, you know, past the allotment time just in case it runs late? And I did. And it didn't even make the, cause I, I was a little bit behind in the game. I didn't even get a chance to watch the last second of the play because <laughs> my fucking recorder went out after 30 minutes after the allotment time, yeah. which is ridiculous, man. Yeah. You know, Jeff Van Gundy is great with all those rules and stuff. I, that's why I love really listening to Jeff because he's, you know, I, I sort of like listen to the rule interpretations and what what should have or shouldn't happen and all that. But yeah, that's crazy with that last crazy 30 number. Seconds Ninety seconds of play once again seconds. took yeah. thirty three minutes of runtime. There's arguments for and against it, pro. There's arguments that against it are that 
you know, it's bad for TV. People, you know, it's just taking too long. Why is it taking so long? But the the four argument is that just the pressure and intrigue of every every second of that 90 seconds should feel like 33 minutes. And I think um, it's just built like a suspense of a Hollywood movie somewhat. So how, how do you see it? What side are you on? I don't know, Bogues. Like, I want to see it done right. Like, I want to see the right call being made. I want to see, like, if you got to walk through all this stuff that it's done right. But- 33 minutes i think you can do it right and cut that time way down <laughs> so you know what i'm saying yeah, like it's, it's you want to get it right that's the most important thing but that's yeah. a long fucking time you're damned if you do damned if you don't because if they get it wrong and it's quicker then people are going to shit on them the whole summer that a team got screwed out of a finals spot um because of a bad call and then now they're on the flip side of that where they they analyze and, and watch video on every single call you got to deal with the 33 minutes i think I, I like the suspense of building it up i'd like to see it shortened but if it if it's not going to cost someone a questionable call at the end of a game that could potentially get a coach fired or get someone a championship ring i don't mind it um mainly maybe even tweak it where you know it's different in the regular season i think once it gets to the playoffs Maybe the games are a bit more intense and important. So I'm not sure what the answer is. There isn't a clear one. Next one, we have Trey Young drew one foul in game two of um, of their second of their conference finals game against the Milwaukee Bucks. It's his fewest of any game since November 13, 2018 versus the Warriors. He drew nine fouls in game one. Useful or useless? I mean, pretty useless in the sense that it's just a freak thing. Then you got to watch the film and actually watch the game to as far as like what happened and why they didn't only call did he did he take too many threes did he not really look for contact on drives you know and all that so i think that stuff sort of plays a little bit into it um i don't think it's a big deal but i mean i know he draws a lot of fouls you know during the year you know he drew about nine free throws a game so yeah it's a little bit of a freak deal with the one free throw you, you definitely like raise an eyebrow to it but I don't think I don't I think it's a little useless stat. Sometimes you just don't get to the line. I mean, you gotta figure out why. Maybe I don't know, maybe there was some blown calls here and there. But what do you think, Bogues, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah, you have to watch the tape, but it's useful in the sense of maybe he wasn't as aggressive or maybe he wasn't getting the whistle. So you need to watch watch the tape. And if you're Atlanta, you want to make sure that it wasn't the whistle because then you're sending clips to the league. And if it was Trey, then your film coaches get to him and say, hey, man, like you were taking a lot of easy outs on, on some of these plays, get get to the paint and attack. We're best when you're, when you're drawing fouls. So I think it can be useful in a, to an extent. The last one I have is Ty Lu is 0.667 series win percentage. So 66.7 series win percentage when trailing 2-0 in a series. All other head coaches, 0.062 series win percentage when trailing 0-2 in a game seven series. So I believe that would be 6%. That's a pretty crazy stat. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. It's pretty freakish because I think when you're trailing 0-2, a lot of a lot of guys just sort of mail it in. So I could see why that percentage is way down. They've had a weird playoff, you know, with Dallas, like you figure that. They're down 0-2. Everything was looking Dallas's way until they just sort of woke up a little bit and figured some things out. But it is crazy, man. I mean, they've done it twice. They're, they're trying to do it a third time, and they're charging back in this game now. Um, we'll talk about it in a sec. But, like, yeah, it's crazy. I would say it's – I mean, it's useful to a sense that you're like, holy shit, but, like – Useless, where it's probably a little bit just freakish. Yeah, a bit of dumb luck. Because your team just is a bit of dumb luck. Yeah, it's so inconsistent too. They're so inconsistent where they play. It's it's like being a team that like you know 
um, you play with an ineligible player, so they give you 20, 20 less wins come playoff time, and then you beat everybody, and you're like, wait a minute, they're an eight seed beating, you know, beating a one seed. What, what's going on? They must be this great. No, it was basically it's just sort of one of those freakish things. They're just up and down in their effort, and they just got to wake up a little bit, and being down 0-2 apparently wakes them up. Mm, yeah, but the, there's been some people that have, have labeled Tyloo the adjustment king based on that percentage, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Of course. We'll see how that goes in this series. Yeah, of course. All right, let's plow through these ones. Fact or fake news? What do you got for us? Folks, hiring a Chauncey Billups solidifies Damian Lillard's future in Portland that he'll stay. Fact or fake news? I uh, think fact in the short term, long term, I think it's still going to depend on results. So um, I think he'll be here for the foreseeable future, next two or three years, and then and then beyond that, it'll. I think it's all going to depend if they if they keep getting these one you know early first round exits potentially. Second round is is celebrated like they achieved something. I think he'll be out. He'll be out of there eventually because he's going to be looking at, you know, your Steph Curry's of the world, even your Chris Paul right now in a conference finals. You know, those guys being able to to win a championship. He hasn't even had a had a sniff at you know being able to do that. So you know, I think it's fact now. But I'll, 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 on the long term, I'd say fake news. Yeah, I, I understand what your thought process with that. I say it's fake news. I think all these players. I don't care who you hire as a coach. They don't care who you hire as a coach. You got to produce and you got to do things, or it doesn't matter. All these like making these moves to win press conferences don't mean shit in the NBA. You know, in college it might, but in the NBA it doesn't mean a goddamn thing. That if if you produce and do what you're supposed to do, then you're being good. If you if you're not going to win in the playoffs and it's still same old stuff, he's going to be gone. So that's that's my feeling. I say it's fake news, and you know I'm just going to go all long term with it, not short. But I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I'm just saying it's going to be all all um, all results driven. All right, Dallas Mavericks will advance to the Western Conference semifinals at least next season. So basically, winning at least one round in the playoffs. So um, they'll make the second forward. round. I think fact. I think they will. I think um, Luca will be better. I think they have some tweaks to make to their roster, which I hope they do. And I think Jason Kidd will give them a bit of that, that sugar shot they need. So I'll say fact. Yeah, I say fact. I, I, like I said before, I think they should have done it already. And uh, I think they just got some freakishly bad luck, you know, with the Powell thing, pandemic and COVID this year. I will say this, folks. I don't think they're going to find a trade partner for Chris Depp's Brazingas this year. So if I were Jason Kidd, instead of like – Figure just assuming that they're going to trade the kid or whatever, or or use them like they used them in the playoffs. I would find a way to use this kid, and I know I've been beating the drum of the coming off the bench thing, and, and I'm not beating that tonight. I'm saying that like you find a way to get him in your lineup and use him and Luca. Yes, your usage rate on Luca is going to be still very high, and he's obviously going to be the focal point. But you find a way to make that kid happy, get his confidence back. And continue to like really help you if there's, you know, look, yeah, that's what I think. I think that they they could use the kid if they use them the right way, they could be okay. It's not going to be ideal, but yes, I think they're definitely going to win the first round next year. I think I think they could possibly get to the Western Conference Finals. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's definitely I think it's definitely fact. Last question, folks. With plenty of cap room this summer, the San Antonio Spurs will look to add a high priced acquisition of either Ben Simmons or Kristaps Porzingis. During the offseason, oh, oh, fake news! I think they—they're just not one of those teams that spends it because they have it. 
You know, that's that's the way I look at the Spurs. I think they'll, they'll keep some cap flexibility unless they really feel like they have their guy, but I don't think they'll do it just to do it. And those two guys, to me, under pop, depending on what he does in the next couple of years, obviously, I just don't think they're I don't think they're they're Spurs guys, to be honest with you. So I'll say fake news. Yeah, I'd say fake news too. I mean, look, they got DeJounte Murray, they got Derek White that they both signed to, you know, deals uh right around the same number. They're around fifteen million, you know, and um you know, going forward. And obviously they both ball dominant. They wouldn't do they wouldn't do a deal for they do wouldn't do a deal for, for Simmons. And I don't think that San Antonio would be you know be interested in either one of those guys for Simmons that'd be probably holding up for a little bit more. The Porzingis thing, obviously the Dallas San Antonio dynamic, they probably wouldn't want to do it anyway. But I don't think they would just add Porzingis to add him and add to their cap number. I think they're gonna probably look to be a little bit aggressive in free agency if they hit a stalemate with signing a, a like one of the top players that they go after. They'll probably just sign a bunch of role players again, short-term deals keep their, you know, cap number flexible. I think they're going to have upwards of 50 plus million. You know, they got to figure out what they're going to do with DeMar DeRozan. He's at 28 coming off. Rudy Gates, 14 comes off. Patty Mills is 13 comes off. So I don't know what they do if they sign those guys to smaller short-term deals, you know, cap-friendly deals going forward just to save a little bit. But I don't think they make a play for either one of those guys. I agree. All right, that's all the fact and fake news. A few questions real quick. One we just answered. So hi, Bogues and Pro. Huge fan of both of you. Love the podcast. Became a massive Warriors fan. Thanks to your, your good self, Bogues, and also love your stories, Pro. My question is now that the draft lottery is done, where do you see Josh Giddy going and where would you like him to go? So we, we addressed that one. So I'll recommend just hitting re- rewind, but hopefully hopefully he's a top 10 just for selfish reasons in Australia. But um, yeah, rewind that. And we get we get into that one pretty deeply. So we won't address that one. Thanks for that question. Hey, Bogues and Pro, love the realness of your pod. It's very refreshing to not hear all the BS that people with agendas carry on with. I love my NBL, but I hate, I hate that LK has, Larry Kesselman has his fingers in so many pies. What's the NBL got to do to get a TV deal? Surely one, surely getting one gives the league the power to thank LK for his service, but the league becomes a better playing field. Would love to know how you think they should go about securing one. Cheers. That's Lefty from Brisbane. So Lefty, yeah, they're in the process or the NBL, we are in the process of negotiating a TV deal. So hopefully that gets announced in the next couple of weeks. Look, Larry's done great things for the league. We've had the debate back and forward and um, he does, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, have have his fingers in a few pies and, and that's you know that's his discretion. He's the owner of the league. So I, I don't agree with it completely and I've been on record and, and he knows that. And But the end of the day he's he's the owner and we have to kind of respect that that's the decision he wants to make we don't have to agree with it so hopefully the tv deal will be a long-term um deal with with good financial incentives and you know we got to find a way to get our tv numbers up to be honest with you our tv numbers don't know if it's a mix of coronavirus or the season running longer than than it usually does but the tv numbers you know we need it we need to find a way of of, of boosting those up and getting those higher and, and that's that's the main goal for the next tv deal as well so hopefully that'll be worked out in the next couple of weeks and there'll be an announcement pro i know you watch tv and you watch it on twitch so you can't really comment too much on that one Folks, I will comment. I totally disagree. Fucking right I disagree. Nobody just sticks a pink finger in a fucking pie. You eat that shit, all right? You do not <laughs> fuck with a pie by – disrespect a fucking pie by putting your fingers in it. You just fucking eat it, all right? It should be all over your fucking face, not on your fingers. Well, it depends what but kind of ahead. pie. That, I, it depends what kind of pie, bro. That's, that's, that's the kicker, you know? There's the American pie. Uh, 
yeah. Hey, folks, tomato, tomato, you know, just like pizza, there's never, you know, pies, there's never a fucking bad slice. But that's just for me. Mm. Humble pie, maybe not. Well, it's, it's using pie loosely and not always in the food form, bro. That, that's where you missed the joke. But that's, ah, that's a good point. That's okay. Yeah. I missed a lot in my life, but go ahead. All right. Hey, guys, big fan of the pod and over the analysis provided. I've got a question around the Mavericks front office situation. I'm a fan of the team, but find a lot of the podcast articles are only tackling one side of the story. Mainly the shadow GM undermines the organization and needs to be gone going forward. Any chance you can provide in more detail the value Haralabob Vulgaris, or Bob as we refer to him, brings to a front office analytical or other and whether there is any way forward for him with the Mavericks after the turmoil surrounding him. Thanks, Connor. What do you think there, bro? I think that his information brings a lot of value to an organization because of his ability to evaluate players. It's ever-changing. He's always watching. He's got analysts working for him. So he's working it day and night. Now, should he be on the sideline running play, you know, telling you what lineups and plays? To a certain degree, that's probably a little bit too much. He doesn't need to do all of that. Does he tell you which players to pick and all that? If you're the owner and you decide that's where he's going to be, that's where he's going to do. And that's fine. Um, I think he does bring value. I think, you know, when you're breaking the game down, I think it definitely brings value. Is it an absolute where I wouldn't challenge him on any of his information based on what your eyes tell you? You know, then there's a, another type of discussion. You know, I think that there should be definitely somebody checking him. And as far as like, look, I, I understand what this is what you're seeing, but this is what I'm seeing. But again, it's all what your owner wants you to do. If your owner wants you to be the absolute power in the organization, so be it. I think his information is valuable. It could help a team, but I think you got to implement it in a certain way that it's just not the absolute, you know? I don't think there's a chance that he stays in the sense that it was a lot of bad publicity from it. And maybe he doesn't want to deal with it. You know, it is a little bit embarrassing. It's a little bit of bullshit you got to deal with. If I'm the owner and I believe in his stuff, I'd keep him. If you're saying his stuff's okay, but it's not worth all the bad press that we gotta we gotta make a move, it all depends. Like I said, as an owner, you gotta hold the line. If that's what you want, just say it that he runs the organization and that's what you want. But and Nico Harrison, I don't see- Nico Harrison will have a say. Obviously, you're bringing him in, so. He'll, For he'll, sure. he'll obviously have a say in that as well above, you know, not above what Cuban says, but his his opinion obviously should be taken into account seeing as he just hired him to run to run the ship. Yeah, no doubt. So, I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, I don't really have an answer. I Like I said, if I was the owner and I believed in him, I would. Obviously, you have to talk to Nico. He's coming into the situation. You got to keep him abreast of what's going on. I do think he's valuable, but I do not think he'll be back based on just the bad publicity surrounding that story with him and the organization but it's not like he's a like i said he's not a mafia member you know yeah. like <laughs> just just picking games with like 18 gold chains on with a mr no. t status set around his neck with, with velour sweatsuits which would be really cool if he did but he's not like that he's an analytical guy he looks like a fucking golf pro he's a you know like he's a professional looking guy and he's got good stuff and you know but it's just it's just a little bit different. And, you know, it was a bad publicity on the story. And, you know, I, I just don't think he'll survive it. But I'm not the owner, so I have no idea. Yeah, what do you think, Bob? I think his value is that he works his balls off analytically and, and spends a lot of time and energy and mental energy even away from work 
into his craft. So I think he's very valuable there. Might just need to be a conversation, like you said, where, you know, Nico and Cuban say, we love you, we love everything you're doing, but we're just going to tone it back with with how influential you are. We just, we want you involved, but, you know, um, we just got to address this. And I know from Bob's point of view, the publicity thing is something that he probably would want to be aired and fixed because I think he was pretty hard done by. I think the messaging was, like you said, that he's this gold chain wearing sports gambling addict um, that's running an NBA organization, which is, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. So I'd like to see him stay on, whether he stays on, whether he wants to do it is the other question, whether he's over it, who knows. So we'll watch that space. But I think he he can be a very valuable tool um, in, on your tool belt if used and utilized properly. Thanks for that question, Connor. Hey, gents, love the pod. Appreciate you all. A question, maybe it already happens and we are not privy to this info, but why don't we see ex-NBA players, overachievers in their position, being brought in to help out younger guys like you helping out Wiseman? Obviously, you're in Oz, but for the sake of my question, Pippen helping out helping out small forward alike and even Ray Allen helping athletes with shooting. Is it more on the current player to seek them out and if they want to improve or is it an organization saying, Ray Allen played for the Bucks, let's try bringing him back to help Giannis with shooting or more common for ex-players to be done with the game and give back? Thanks, gents. Ray, Sydney, Australia now. <laughs> I already know. I think I know where you're going to go with this because uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of different facets, but I'll, I'll, I'll start. Look, for me personally, the NBA life takes a lot away from your family and off the court and all that kind of stuff. So to kind of continue to do that, I don't think it's fair for my family. I wanted to kind of chill out a little bit, although there are some days where things are really slow and boring. I think that's more important to my family right now. And that NBA life is a tough life to, to lead even post-career. The question around why they don't do it with a lot of ex-players, a lot of ex-players have bad habits. A lot of ex-players have um, all of a sudden you move them into a structured corporate type expectation of being on time. You got to do this. You got to do some some maybe a report, it's just not a strength that players have. And that's not a knock, that's the way it is. And that's why I think some organizations steer away from those bad habits. It might be they party too much, it might be, you know, all those habits they have as a player are generally not just going to change because they're now in a position where you're wearing a suit and tie or a polo and coaching guys, right? So I think that's a, that's a play. And the other one is that a lot of the high-end elite guys have made enough money to not need to do it. You know, so I think they're the factors. But how do you see it, Pro? What's what's your opinion on it? Both. All great points that you made with the family and, and, and the structure and, and things like that. Um, I'm going to go another way with it. And I'm going to say that, like, most great players don't really understand why they were great. They were naturally gifted in most cases. They just got it. And it's a little bit, of, it's a lot of, a big difference to me in knowing how to do it and knowing how to teach it. And in my opinion, the better players that could teach usually were those role players, usually were those second unit guys, usually were those fourth, fifth options that were workhorse guys that weren't as talented and really had to, you know, they really had to fall with their, like they, they had to fall on their skill level. They had to fall on their doing the work day in and day out. And I feel as though teaching, you know, especially with great players, like working with another young, a young player that needs a lot of work and it's a struggle and it's going to be back and forth. There's going to be some drawback with it. There's going to be like, you're going to work on a certain thing, but they're going to lose their confidence for a while. Like an ex-player don't want to deal with that shit. 
They really don't for the most part. They want to like, they won't mind working out a player, working on some footwork and stuff. But you're going to, when you're going to have to really like put, dig your feet in and it's going to be a long term thing where there's going to be a lot of like back and forth. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs with it. And it's not going to be instant gratification where if you're talking about an NBA all star, they don't want to deal with that. They were an all star for 15 years, a Hall of Famer. They don't want to deal with that struggle. On another end, most Hall of Fame players, they try to work out players like, A, everybody's the same and everybody was like them. Case in point, Hakeem Olajuwon. Hakeem Olajuwon does an unbelievable job teaching footwork. You can get his YouTube video of him working out Dwight Howard, him working out Kobe Bryant. Um, you know, he's worked out a bunch of other players. But like, like so he worked out JaVel McGee as well. Like, I remember when JaVel was with Dallas. I asked him about it and like, I think Hakeem charges like 25 grand for a week or something like that to work with him. I forgot, I forgot the number. I've heard it somewhere, but like he was working on with, he was working with uh, JaVel on the dream shake and JaVel's skill level and sort of where he falls in the league. You don't want him doing the dream shake. (laughs) He needs to be working on simple things like, like Hakeem could really teach him about jump hooks. He could teach him about that little face-up jump shot. He could teach him about a spin move going baseline. But when you work out everybody like they're like you, you don't know the difference. And but like, but not every ex player is like that. Not every and like I think when you're teaching a certain skill like shooting, like you shot the ball unbelievably, some players did. And they're trying to teach a player to shoot like them. But they don't understand that like when you change someone's shot, it takes a long fucking time. And they only remember the end result of them being great shooters at the end of their careers. And they don't understand about a a player's psyche and a player's sort of instability sometimes in dealing with that. And not every non-player like me can teach because you got to like as an ex-player, I think you got to know how to teach and have sort of know your philosophy on teaching and know, understand that it's going to take a long time for a player sometimes to pick up a skill. But for, you know, but, but the good thing about ex-players is they know how to be around players. They know how to communicate with them where, you know, sometimes people who are just in film rooms or like me who didn't play, like they study the game a lot more and they know the game a lot more, but they don't know how to communicate with players and they just like, they bark at them or they, they just don't know how to talk to them. So, like, there's a lot of back and forth. I just don't think that a lot of really talented ex-players, not not all of them, but I'm saying a majority of them, over 50% of them, are not good at teaching because they don't have the, like, the everyday lunch pail. It's not going to – it may not be a great day today to work with a player, especially if you're not working with the all-star all the time. You're working with the 12th guy in the team or 13th guy in the team where, you know, their, your expectation and their talent level is not as high. So that's why ex-players to me in most cases aren't great teachers. They're great at certain things, but they're not great at teaching because it takes a lot to be able to work with a player day in and day out and deal with that struggle, that up and down and what you tell a player and being consistent, showing up with that player every day, and the battles that their their psyche's taking every day, not being the, as good as they're really built up to be. So that's where I think the challenge is for ex players is for me, uh, Bogues. And plus, 
a lot of times when you have a player who played 15 years in the league or 12 years in the league, it was a different league with the types of kids that are in the league when they played versus like play kids today. They're different. And sometimes they have a problem dealing with the new age kids today, you know, and the empowerment and, and some of like their approach to working and things like that. So they struggle with that as well. I've, I've seen that close up, you know, year in and year out with, when ex-players are trying to work out players of, you know, a different era. Yeah, I think it's a very valid point. And we historically see most ex-players that move into development roles are or were role players themselves. I think the majority, you'd argue in the NBA, that are former players that move into those jobs as development coaches are actually former players that weren't superstars because I think it's it's hard to understand if you're a superstar player, like, why can't you do this? I did it. That's the mentality I think that you're talking about when they try to develop guys that are struggling with something where it's like, you know, you just need to work harder. It's like, well, it's not as simple as that sometimes. It needs to be a technique breakdown and some skill development. I think the guys that were more role player orientated, they get that much more and can relate to that much more. Whereas I think the superstar falls back on that, that, you know, if I could do it, why can't you? Well, it's like, well, that's why you were elite. That's why you were a, a Hall of Fame or a superstar. So I think that's a, they're, they're all very valid points. So there's, there's a mix of stuff there. Ray, I hope that, that answers that question. So we'll finish off with this this series, which is currently at 71 to 70. Phoenix up by one point with eight minutes left in the fourth, so we're going to have to wing it a little bit. But the Suns-Clippers series, the Ty Lue adjustments have obviously been something we've spoken about even even um, in the the stats column of, of our uh, of our podcast. CP3, it, it felt like him missing the first two games, they got in a flow, and then that flow was thrown out a little bit in, in game three when, when the Clippers came back. With CP3 back in the lineup, things kind of changed a little bit. Zubats has been pretty big in this series, I think. The other one that I just noted, Reggie Jackson has been really big in this series, 19 points in game one, 23 in game two, 23 in game three. He's currently at 16 in this game. Phoenix basically rolled in game one and two. It wasn't, the games weren't really that close. They got it done pretty easily. It's looking like this this game will go down to the wire right now. Few observations. Kawhi, is he done for the season? I mean, he's, he's sitting in the crowd or in a box, which is really, really strange to me. And it, it leads me down the path of gambling and guessing that he might be out for the year i just don't see why he's not on the bench with the team or back in the locker room so it might be a whole thing where i'm, I'm done i'm here to support the team but i'm done i hope i'm wrong but i think there's a, a likely chance that he's done for the season even if they make the finals one thing i want to break down was game two the final play we've seen it all a million times it's the the 33 33 minutes for 90 seconds that we just spoke about earlier the suns basically get a a hoop on the buzzer at the death to win the game. Number one, for people that don't know, if you take a ball out of bounds, you're allowed to throw it in the cylinder. It's not goaltending. But for any aspiring coaches and any aspiring people that want to want to study the game, there's one thing I'd implore you to watch. It's the ball pressure of DeMarcus Cousins on that inbound play, I think just was not 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 as, as good as it could have been. Number one, he was angled in a way to protect them throwing the ball to the three-point line. If you look at the the tape, he wasn't angled towards protecting the basket. And number two, when you're, you know, they subbed in a big guy to put on the ball for a reason to try and intimidate the the person taking the ball out of bounds. You need to jump up and down and yell and scream and wave your arms like crazy um, and try to try to make that pass as tough as possible. And I'm not sure if Demarcus was told to to protect the three a little bit, but he wasn't doing either of those two things. And that was, I'd argue, if you had Demarcus on the right angle 
and using his length and frame, jumping straight up and down like a pogo stick, that pass that Jay Crowder made is a lot, lot harder to make. I mean, Jay Crowder basically threw that thing on the money. He almost made the basket himself. So just a few observations I've th- seen. Pro, first, let's address that end of game play and, and give me your thoughts on that and then give me your thoughts on, on the series. Yeah, I mean, the play was wild. It was crazy. And, and you're right. Like, if you look at the... Yeah, the, if you look at the ball pressure and, 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 and like it wasn't like he like totally was a dead fish on it and didn't give him anything. It just I don't think he was sort of zoned in to what he needed to be zoned in with as far as, you know, as really being putting good ball pressure on there. And you got to be look, I don't care how much you play or not play in a series when you're called upon on, on a situation like that. You know, first of all, there's a million camera angles. You got poor motherfuckers that were there 33 minutes like me who couldn't even record the fucking thing because it ran out. So, of course, they're going to be overly doing it with breaking down that last play. And and you see it a million times where, yeah, the ball pressure really wasn't what it, what it, it should have been. It's sort of like, you know, nobody putting somebody on the ball in that Duke-Kentucky shot when Waitner made the shot. Like, it's just going to be over done over and over and over again as far as, you know, people breaking down the play. As far as the series is concerned, like, you know, you, you hit on, you know, great points with CP being out, Kawhi Leonard, what, what's going on there. Like, I think the campaign injury real last game really sunk, for, you know, you know, Chris Paul wasn't playing great. And campaign, who would have thought that? I mean, I give him a lot of credit for, you know, bouncing out of the league for a while and then coming back to doing what he did with Phoenix this year. But like... You know, missing him was a really big blow to them because he gave him a lot of energy, gave him a lot of penetrating, gave him a lot of shooting, you know, and just gave him some energy. And missing him, I think, was a big difference last game for sure. And having him here today, you know, obviously they're in the game now. So, yeah, hey, look, it's a struggle, 2-0 again, and they won a game. They're trying to tie it up. I think it's going to be a lively series. I think it's going to go at least six, if not seven. It'll be a a very telling series. And, you know, look, the Clippers are used to playing without Kawhi now a little bit, and they've they've adjusted. You've got guys like Terrence Mann and Jackson and – you know, Zubat stepping up, so it's just sort of a, a next day, next man up mentality. So it'll be interesting, you know, to I've see who wins that, that series. I enjoyed seeing that pivot. Like the Clippers look like it's a bit more smoother. We mentioned this a yeah. pot or two ago because now Kawhi out. I think the role players have really been solidified about who's doing what. Paul George is our guy. We're playing around him. Reggie Jackson's now that number two option. It just seems a little bit more smoother. That's not a knock on Kawhi. You obviously want to have Kawhi out no. there. Um, they're not, but yeah, it just looks looks like it's not as clunky. And looks like everyone's boarding to their roles. Do they have enough talent to get through this series? Who knows? Um, we we prove the Suns. We pick them, and they prove us wrong week in week out. But um, I think <laughs> this is going to be a fun series. I think it goes six or seven, and in ten minutes' time, we'll know if it will <laughs> or potentially will. Yeah, no doubt. And we'll see no how doubt. it goes. But we'll continue to watch that series. But. Um, that wraps up episode 26 of the Basketball Podcast. Thanks for tuning in at Rogue Bogues on all your social media favorite accounts and on all your podcast platforms. We are Rogue Bogues. Check out at Hoop Consultants on Twitter and Instagram for pros analysis on everything from basketball to birthday cakes. And we will see you next week. Thanks, bro. Keep your fingers out of pies and just eat that shit. Just eat that shit. All right. Catch up. Later.